ship is dying. And my only way out of here is with one of them. say I have this coming. And you know what? They're right. Um, I've always been a fan of systemic games. I mean, I grew up really, I've been playing Civilization since the first one that came out, and I'll play every version of every Civilization, every add-on pack forever. XCOM is another one of my favorite games. I grew up playing paper, you know, hex-based board games, but my games that I've worked on haven't really been like that, with the exception of Freedom Force a, a little bit. Um, but narrative and, and systemic, uh, they kind of fight with each other. And so we haven't really been able to sort of make, you know, really integrate system work as much as possible. Um, so to do something really different, we really had to go back to the drawing board, and that required uh, a new structure, um, a smaller group of people, and time. That was the most important thing. Time to fail. Time to fail for a long period where you don't have 150 people who are looking at you and saying, dude, you know, what am I supposed to be doing today? Um, I want to say a couple of things that this is not. This talk is not a design for a specific game. I'm not here to pitch a product. It's a GDC talk. This, you're all developers. I'm a developer. Um, this is just early, er, early thoughts on something that I want to put out there. Um, this is not like a specific development plan where, oh my god, they cut that feature. There's no features here yet. We're just really talking on a very high level. Uh, it's not intellectual property. You're going to see nothing here like a Rapture or Columbia. You're going to see me stealing a lot of meta intellectual property from other people that we're just using for the purpose of example. Um, and for headline, if you're a journalist and your headline says, Levine reveals new game, you've written the wrong fucking headline. <laughs> but one of you will write it, I guarantee it. Um, all the content here you're going to see is basically just stolen from other places and from, from other great games, but it's um, the content, the, the, the kind of worlds, the kind of characters, it's just for, it's just for the purposes of example. So, but what, so that's a lot of what this isn't. What this is, it's a conversation, it's my way of contributing to a conversation which I think is already going on. And a lot of people I respect um, in the industry have been thinking about some of these things. And I'm, this is me and my team trying to bring our sort of approach to it. Um, and that's my PowerPoint skills at work. Um, so it's our initial scratching in the dirt to try to figure out a way to really make player-driven, these are the key words, player-driven, replayable narrative. Okay, 
So I want to say one thing. You, a lot of times these talks are like, well, don't record this, don't do it, don't take pictures, don't do anything like that. This is completely open source. Take pictures, film it, put it on the internet, whatever you want to do. You know, do a riff tracks to it. I don't care. Um, and but, you know, tweet it. And most importantly, if it's something useful to you, steal whatever you want from it. Um, I don't know how much it's going to be useful because it's pretty early, but there's nothing proprietary here that you should be remotely nervous about leveraging for your own stuff. All right, so we talked some about the, the negatives of linear narrative. The ex it's incredibly expensive to make. The individual pieces don't speak to each other. They do emotionally, like what happened to Booker at the beginning of Infinite, talk to what happened at the end in the player's mind, but the game there's nothing in the game in the way in civilization, your choices you make at the beginning really make, make an effect at the end, like in a meaningful, meaningful way, you know, which, which you know, types of cities you build, which types of, um, of cultural trees you've taken. Um, they don't really do that in linear narrative. Um, branching does exist in a lot of games, not so much in our games, but there's still X number of states. And what I want to talk today is not X number of states, but X to the Y number of states. I haven't taken math since 1983, so I think that's right. Um, it also, linear narrative doesn't really fully embrace the po unique power of games, which is replayable and player-driven. You know, as much as I love the narratives we did, really, we, we were so much feeling, you know, we knew the constraints of it so much that we kind of made a lot of meta-commentary on constraints, because we, we, it is a constraint, and though I, I love that form, I think we sort of said what we had to say and we want to see what's past it. And most importantly, it's not player driven. You are seeing the same story your friend is seeing or you're seeing X of Y versions of a story your friend is seeing. Um, multiple endings still mean a fixed number of player states. Uh, there's five endings, there's not X to the Y endings. Um, and one of the most frustrating parts for me is you can only add in to a narrative game traditionally, sorry, add on to a narrative game, meaning here's another chunk which you play that it's subsequent to what you already played, where games like Civilization, games like XCOM, you can add in to the experience and enhance the, the experience from the very beginning of the game. So that's gonna be a focus of what we talk about today as well. Um, I don't want to underplay the work that's being done in this area. I think, you know, if you look at stuff at Bioware, the stuff at, you know, the, the Witcher guys are doing, there's a lot of really great work about opening up narrative, but I think they're, they're taking a fundamentally different approach, but I don't, and in no way do I want to say their work isn't extraordinary and important. Um, so how do we traditionally think about AI? Whenever I talk to people about AI, a lot of people say to me, when do you think an AI is going to be like a person? When is it going to pass the Turing test? And I think that's fundamentally too ambitious a way to think about characters in AIs. Um, because I think we've all demonstrated there's nobody on the planet who's even close to this. I think we're several paradigm shifts of not just technology. As a writer, it's hard enough to write one good character, let alone um, a character that can react to any arbitrary thing and say clever and funny lines while he does it. So a really robust solution to this lies beyond any technology or creative horizon that we currently have. So we're really scratching at the surface. But I think we're giving up the, um, the good for the great because I think there's real major steps we can make here, but we have to refocus our attention a little bit. Um, you, if you're over-ambitious, can lead to paralysis, and I think that's what happens. Well, we can't do it, so let's just not even really try. Um, so let's try. Um, some first steps. 
physics. Remember when physics, remember 20 years ago, there was no physics in games. Physics was an animation that played when you dropped something that had no, did not speak to any math really of any kind. Um, but when they started with physics, and I got very excited because I love simulation, they started very simply with you know, 2D circles and rectangles and spheres and, and cylinders and axis aligned boxes and you know, so on and so on and so on. And now there's cloth and liquid, but they're still dealing with uh, a subset. And they keep building up from that subset. But every time they add something to that subset, it gets more powerful and it gets more real feeling. But remember back in the day when the first things appeared, it wasn't, you weren't like, well, fuck this, it's not perfect physics. Let's forget it, I'm not gonna play it. It was exciting. And I think that there's, there's a path to take here with characters. So if we don't try to model everything, but model a, lim a set of limited and believable and impactful things. So let's try, as we think about this, to set some goals. Create a narratively driven experience where the narrative elements are nonlinear and they talk to each other, they interact with each other, they, they, they bounce off one another. Like um, I was about to make some science reference and again, I was a drama major so I completely blanked on what that reference would be, like electrons or atoms, does that sound right? Okay. Um, um, and all these narrative elements trigger off of player action, not off authorial action. Meaning not like we decide, like in an infinite for instance, and I'm, you enter a bounding box, generally a narrative thing would happen when you'd enter a, a bounding box and we'd say, oh, you enter the bounding box and conditions X, Y, and Z are met, so we'll trigger this narrative event. But those are generally off of where the author, author intends them to happen, not where the player um, arranges for them to happen. These triggers, these things that change the narrative state, the things you can interact with in the narrative have to be transparent to the player so you're not just like out there doing things and people are reacting in completely crazy ways. We want to show you the, the things, the, the, the passions, and I'll talk to you about what passions are in a minute, what they are and how you can interact with them. So let's, um, I hope Todd Howard isn't here, um, but let's just sort of take his, you know, their design and you know, a lot of MMO style design and single player MMO like Skyrim design. Um, basics, so we have a game we can talk about that isn't necessarily in any way, shape, or form the game we're making, but it gives you some basis of understanding to apply the new stuff to. So let's assume a game, kind of open-worldy, with factions you can choose between, with quests and character growth and you know, armor to collect and, and monsters to fight and crafting of all kinds. Um, I would expand the crafting in, in um, I take a page out of Dark Cloud's book for this example too, Dark Cloud 2. Hope you've all played it, it's like one of the best games ever. Um, you can actually craft, there you go, you can actually craft um, actual towns and buildings and those, there's a cycle, you go to the dungeon, you collect loot, you collect crafting materials, you come back to the town, you can build parts of the town, that gives you buffs, that gives you new characters, that gives you new opportunities. There's a great cycle, what I talk about here is the strong loop between non-combat and combat. A really strong non-combat combat loop. Non-linear quest structure is also critical here. All right, so here's my incredibly innovative world. Um, four villages. Imagine an open worldy kind of thing. It's an orc village, there's a dwarf village, there's a goblin village and a elf village. And then there's you. You come into the world. And so now we start getting into the stuff that is um, the stuff we've been thinking about and the stuff we're, we've been focusing our brain on. So in the orc village, there's lots of people. <laughs> There's five stars in each town. Now that number is, is placeholder, 
But what I want is, a, when I say a star, these are the characters that really matter. And the question is, I don't want to overwhelm the player with a thousand characters that matter because you'll just keep, you just won't be able to track them. So the number is really how many people can the, can the player really track? How many stars can the player track? Okay, what is a star? A star is an NPC with a set of capital P passions, a defined term, which I'll define in a minute. Um, what's passion? Okay, these are not full psychological models. You know, as I, I said, Tech Before has been trying to really fully simulate a human being and, all, you know, and how they work, but I'm not really trying to do that. Let's go to literature and media. So you know a bunch of stuff about Luke Skywalker. He has passions, right? What are Luke's passions? He wants to prove himself. He wants to go on adventures. He has issues with his dad. Um, these are things that really define him. There's things that probably exist. We all have things that exist. And think about it, just forget about Luke, just forget the people you know, people you work with. You know a bunch about their passions, but like, you don't really know about their kinky weird shit that goes on at home, and maybe you don't even want to know. Um, so there are things that don't really matter. You know, maybe Luke is a vegetarian, maybe he's one of those really jerky vegetarians who won't stop. I'm a vegetarian, so I kind of know. Um, he's, got pro you know, he's got a terrible tooth decay problem, he's got OCD, and like, these are things that exist in Luke Skywalker, but they're just not relevant to, to the experience at hand. So let's not worry about that stuff, let's just worry about his passions. So a passion is what a star cares about relative to the actions of the player, meaning relative to the things the player can impact upon. A passion is transparent to the player, meaning that the player can see these passions and see how they are, the, the character, the NPC is feeling about them in relation to these passions. A passion must be responsive to the player's actions. It has no meaning if you can't do anything about it. That's what, you know, you're, you're the star, you're, you're the center of this game, you want to be able to impact these passions. So, let's meet Frank, one of the stars of the Orc Village. He's a blacksmith. He has a store. Hey, guess what? He sells a lot of armor and weapons and crap like that. But unlike most blacksmiths who just stand there and deal with you on price, um, Frank's a little more complicated. He's, he's kind of a deep guy. Um, he's got three passions. Let's just talk about one of those passions. He has a passion, which is he hates elves. And a lot of Orcs share this passion. Um, and can you guys see the cursor I'm, I'm drawing with here? There it is. Um, oh, it's great. It's completely offset from my screen. Um, so, um, so you see that every, all the characters' passions or feelings about you in regard to this thing. So Frank cares about hating elves, but he, this is really about how does he feel about you in relation to hating elves. Well, he doesn't know you at first, so he's, like, he's, he's neutral with you. Um, you know, he's right in the middle. But as you do things relative to elves, either doing bad crap to elves or doing good stuff to elves, he likes you more or less in regard to this passion, okay? Um, so, example. Frank hates elves, you kill an elf. Woo, he likes you for that. And his passion in this regard will go, move towards the positive. Um, nice and simple. On the other side, he hates elves. You help an elf of any kind. You, know, you do a quest for an elf, you rescue an elf, you build a house for an elf. You woo an elf, he's going to feel more negative about this. That's, this is all pretty simple, and you've seen some stuff like this in games before already. Um, so he, but he, Frank has three passions that you know about the beginning. And let's say the passions are he hates elves, he wants a temple to the old gods built, not the new gods, the old gods, and he wants to woo Barbara the orc because she's beautiful. Um, and you can impact all these passions. You can help him build the temple. 
you can help him prove himself to Barbara. All, you know, these are all normal sort of questing things and building things and crafting things and fighting things and dungeon-y things and collecting things. But they're all impa impacted by you. These won't move on their own except what you do um, relative to them. Now, the macro passion. Okay, this is where it gets interesting to me. The macro passion, macro passion, and this is where my math won't come in again. I'm going to say it's a function. I'm going to say it's an average, and I'm probably completely wrong because there's probably somebody telling me it can't be an average, but I'm saying it's an average, so shut up. Um, it's, it's a function or an average of the three, of the three um, micro passions yield a, a, basically their overall feeling about you. And remember, so it's not just one feeling. It moves on, on all these different axes. But those yield a larger feeling about you. And you see these little black lines um, on, these, on, the, on, the, on the macro passion, that's, that gold bar, those are called thresholds. And when, that, when, when you pass certain thresholds on that, Frank will start doing stuff for you or doing stuff against you, depending on how you're deal, dealing with Frank. So for instance, you um, steal the elf king's crown. Remember, he does not like elves. So that micro passion feeds into the macro passion and ding, oh, I missed a slide. Um, you kill some elves at the beginning. Um, ding, Frank says, oh, guess what? There's a 20% discount in my store from now on, as long as you don't go back past that threshold because you do things he doesn't like. Then you do something bigger. You, you steal an elf king's crown. Ding, Frank offers to send NPCs, henchmen, to help you in battle. That will appear sometimes just when you need them. Um, now, a player destroys an elf shrine, no ding, because you actually haven't crossed the threshold, but you're moving along the bar, so it's still good, but you haven't hit an actual threshold for a thing. Now, you like start hanging out with the elves, and you, um, uh, no, that's the wrong thing. Oh, no, no sorry, my mistake. Um, you, you help build his temple to the old gods that he likes. Ding, he makes a special item for sale. I, th I think you get the idea. Um, now, on the other side, you start hanging out with the elves, and maybe you, you kind of like one of the elves, and you do a quest for one of them. Well, Frank's going to hear about that. Unding, you know, his, his micro-passion of elves will move back a little bit, and maybe enough to actually affect the macro-passion bar, and that special item that was on the shelf goes off the shelf. And he will reflect all this in his dialogue with you. Says, yeah, dude, heard what you did with the elves, not fucking cool. Um, you know, feeding this back is all really, really important. Um, I'm going to take a little um, sidestep here and talk about zero-sum games. And they're going to be very important to what we're talking about here. You may be sensing this already. Um, $10 to anybody who spots the math error, um, which I forgot to fix. Um, so zero-sum game is, say there's 10 golds, and Ken and Pierre both want the 10 golds. And either Ken, and you could have a bunch of situations. I got 10, he's got none. I've got zero, he's got 10. I've got three, he's got seven. I've got six, he's got five. Um, <laughs> drama major. Um, but it's a zero-sum game, meaning he gains, I lose. I gain, he loses. Then there's non-zero-sum games. Um, and I'm going to use Lucky Charms, because I like Lucky Charms as an example. Say I've got a, a surplus of blue moons. And Pierre has a surplus of pink hearts, more than we can possibly eat. But we really both want, we want the variety. It's really important for our economy. We can trade. So I give my surplus to him. This is you know, this classic, this is what trade is, right? He gives me his surplus. And now we both have much better economies because we have this mixture of resources we need. That's a non-zero-sum game. 
Zero sum means you can't please everyone. And we're going to leverage zero sum in this design substantially. Um, so for instance, Frank and Pete hate elves. Player helps Romeo the elf. And, the, and, the, and Frank and Pete like you less. So the, the elves like you more, that elf likes you more, maybe other elves like you more, but they're going to like you less, zero sum. But there's even a zero sum between in, in, in villages themselves. Frank the orc loves the old gods. Well, Pete the orc is a cleric for the new gods. And every time you help build the old god temple, you're going to piss Pete the orc off. Now you can trade them off against each other, because remember, these aren't unilateral. Each character has three or more passions. So you can really piss Pete off in regard to the temple, but you can help him out in other areas. And you're going to have to balance all these things off one another. But they're all going to be transparent to you. And we have to have a limited number of them so you can really track this all, so it just doesn't become a giant spreadsheet that overwhelms you. But, you know, as I said, you're damned if you do, if you're damned if you don't. Let's talk about the love that dare not speak its name. So, orc and elf. We have Juliet the orc is in love with Romeo the elf. Um, now, most of the orcs want bad crap to happen to the elves, except for Juliet. So you can go all day and pound on the elves, and all the orcs are going to love you, but you're going to be pissing off Juliet. So she's, for instance, the priestess in the temple, when she gives the healing, well, she's, you're going to have a hard time getting that healing from her. Um, but if you help Romeo, she's going to, her approval is going to go, of you going to go up. But there's going to be a lot of orcs who don't like that. So even within villages, they're not, they're not a monoculture. They all have different hopes and dreams and feelings. Um, so we talked about characters. Um, you know, why are there only five characters in each city? Well, there's going to be a lot more characters, but there will be what I call drones. And they're very simple. Their macro bar, they just have a macro bar, is a function of all the other, of the stars in that town's macro bars. And basically, they're just going to be guards and hirelings and scouts and spies and foragers and, um, and shopkeepers who aren't complicated, but they just, they just sort of feel generally how the town feels about you. But they won't be able to give you the kind of benefits that the stars will be able to give you. So they will populate the world, but not with millions of stars. Um, I won't go too deep into this slide, but there's like whole list of things you can accomplish for people. Um, you've probably seen a lot of them in other games. Some of them could be new. You know, worshiping gods, killing people, rescuing people, collecting resources, destroying resources, and then rewards that these stars can give you. Price adjustments, combat help, they can give you buffs, they can help you build new buildings which give you other benefits. They'll loan you equipment, they'll give you equipment, they'll, um, you know, they'll send henchmen to help you. Um, and um, and then punishments, the same way. They can, do all, they can do all the negative. They can raise their prices. They can embargo items to you. They can debuff you. They can send out hostile drones to get you. All kinds of crazy stuff. But this is a list we'll just keep growing and growing and growing. But they all, all of these have to come off the macro bars, which are a net effect of the three, of the three um, passion bars. All right. So let's talk about a dramatic event. So we want, in this world, like I'm speaking very generally about stories so far, and this conversation will stay pretty particular and general about story. You know, the goal, obviously we're not, this is not at the level of a you know, Last of Us story here I'm talking about, or a Bioshock story. We're trying to keep it um, very simple, but I want you to keep in mind that the goal eventually will be once we have these systems in place to actually apply real, interesting, meaningful story, but the system comes first. So let's talk about an event, a very traditional event here. So we know authorially that 
and we feed back to the player that if, if there's a two orc stars that disapprove of the player and any, any three other stars approve of the player on their macro bar to a certain extent, a red dragon will appear in the world. And the red dragon is what we call an unaligned star. He has no village. All he cares about is death and destruction. All he cares about. He doesn't care who you do it to, he just wants him dead. And so he's got a macro bar. And you see, he's got all these things he can do for you, all those black lines on the macro bar. And the more terrible things you do, the more ding, the more stuff he gives you. He shows up in battle to help. You know, you kill orcs, you, then you kill some elves, and you burn down their village, and he gives you a, a kill base buff. And then you do, a, you do so many terrible things. You start a dwarf and goblin war through a series of quests, and now he says, dude, I will destroy any town you want from me. Just give me the word, and I'll go kill it. And that has obviously a major effect on the game. It kills a bunch of stars, really changes the battlefield, but that's the, that's the end game with the, with the red dragon. But... It's also a silver dragon. If you remember your Dungeons and Dragons, the metallic dragons are nice and the colored dragons are bad. Um, at least that's the way I, my, in, in, uh, when I remember it. So the silver dragon only wants you to do constructive things. He doesn't care for who. He wants you to help. He wants you to build. He wants you to craft crops. He wants you to do all those nice things. Um, but you want to punch him in the face sometimes. He's so nice. But there is a zero-sum game. And obviously he's got, he can give you a whole bunch of stuff. But there's a zero-sum game between the red dragon and the silver dragon. So as you're making one of them happy, you're going to piss the other one off. And if you get a dragon, if you get one dragon really happy at you, well, guess what? The other dragon's going to be super unhappy with you, and I don't need to tell you what happens after that. So there's this complex web of sort of alliances, allegiances, um, different feelings, you know, even, and villages aren't holistic, and... and, and, and and you know they have different people can have different feelings within villages, and you're going to have to either when you go into the game play them off each other. You're going to have to decide, make some decisions. I'm going to be Mr. Orc this time. I'm going to totally hook up with the Orc village, but that means you're not going to get a bunch of things in other villages. Or you're going to play them all off against each other. Or you're going to keep both dragons sort of you know in the middle, but you're not going to go too far with either one of them, or you won't interact with them at all. These will all be choices in the game. And then you throw in more factions. Yeah, here's the dwarves, here's the goblins, all with their stars, all with, all with their drones. And, and, and they all play into the other systems. They all speak. Every, everything, every new thing you add can speak to all the other things that exist. Now, let's talk about an event. Another really original event. From the north comes hordes of white zombies. Now, that has a net effect of adding a passion to almost everybody in the world, which is, holy shit, I'm scared of the white zombies. And that's going to, so no matter how they feel about each other, and that was, you know, if you, if you look at Game of Thrones, you know, the, um, the uh, Night's Watch went around to all the kings and all the kings, and they said, hey, help us with zombies, and only one of them showed up, you know? But they all cared about them to various, various degrees, so you're gonna have different passions. But maybe there's gonna be a dwarven necromancer who's like, well, this is awesome. I love the fact that these guys showed up because I'm a necromancer. Um, and so these major events can change the, the ground underneath you. They won't change the existing passions, but maybe they can add new passions um, and give you a different way to influence people because new things have happened in the world. All right, so as I said before, I hinted at before, none of this is like earth shattering from a, oh my God, that, that's an amazing narrative. Um, but it's about the opportunities and it's about opportunities to make this replayable narrative. So we, we had to build the system first and this is what this is, is building the system independent of a game. That applies to this, this could apply to a first-person game, this could apply to a fantasy game, this could apply to an RTS. The system really can apply to pretty much any game. Um, 
I gave you sort of an example of, 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 of an RPG. But you're building a web of nearly infinite relationship states. And these states, these changes in these states is where you'll fire off our TM, professionally crafted, well-written, well-acted narrative and dialogue. But they, will be, they won't spawn off trigger points in the world. They'll spawn off a confluence of all these things ha um, interacting with each other. So, you know, here's a bunch of characters saying a bunch of, saying a bunch of things um, that will be, you know, obviously it's all placeholder dialogue still, but they are saying, uh, except for OMG, that will be in the game. Um, they are, you know, they are, these are spawning off of what you do and, and, and as you influence their passions, they will react to you. Um, let's go for a detailed example of sort of a story that can form around this. Um, there's you, there's a dwarf named Betty, and an elf named Veronica. Um, they are both, have, each of them have a passion, and please, like, this mace, like, not all women are looking only to get married, and this is not, like, I'm not making a statement about sexual interactions here. This is just a Betty and Veronica example. Pretend they're dudes. Um, and, um, Say they're both looking for marriage and with you. So that's her passion. Now you start interacting with them, you start doing things to impress and make for and build a relationship with Veronica. So she says, I'd really like you to meet my parents. You have to, that's a quest. You have to go to this quest, fight a bunch of monsters, deal with a bunch of crap, craft some flowers, you know, craft a, a bag of donuts or whatever. Um, and bring it to her parents, that quest one, boom. Um, you, that makes um, her passion for you grow and her macro bar starts to move. And she's like, oh, thank you for meeting my parents. Here's a, 10 pl a plus 10 sword, a mithril sword. Um, then you, uh, you craft Betty a house um, and she likes that a lot. Um, she, gives you, she gives you a buff that gives you plus 10 approval to all your actions um, in, the, in, in, in her town, in the elf town. So every time you get a Every time you do something for somebody else, they're going to enhance the, the effect of that because Betty's saying nice things about you. And we'll support that with content. She'll be walking around town saying how awesome you are, singing your praises, and you'll see people react to that, and we'll reinforce that with the game system. Um, now, if you step back and you look at Betty and Veronica, well, they're not just two different women. They're, marrying them will yield very different effects. Um, really, Betty's about crafting. Betty's about, um, Betty's about building, Betty, Betty's about um, crops, Betty's about sort of earthy things. And Veronica's more royalty and she can give you like lots of nice weapons and treasures and castles and things like that. And you look at them, you're like, okay, well, you know, where's my strategy here as a gamer? How do I want to approach situations? Just like any character decision you make in a game. But you're going to have to decide. You can't marry them both, so you're going to have to decide. And in this case, let's say you choose Veronica, um, and you, you, you decide you want the combat benefits. So you really start pushing on her. You build her an enchanted garden, and that's like, that moves her macro bar up to the point where she unlocks the wedding quest for you. Um, and the wedding quest is craft a tuxedo, build a chapel, get the priest's um, macro bar to a certain place where he's willing to marry you by doing a bunch of crap for him uh, and any, any of his passions, not just one quest, getting all his passions to a point where the macro bar yields, he's willing to marry you, and then you go on a quest to a dungeon to find the ring that she wants. Um, let me step ahead for a second. Now, but remember, as you're pleasing Veronica, you're pissing off Betty, because she still has hopes for you, but that doesn't mean that you have to go on one track and commit to it. 
you can waver. You can go back and forth and you can decide to you know, take your time and decide. But you know, that, that can have negative impacts because she's wa they're both watching what you do and they're pulling away from you or pulling towards you. Um, so when you complete the quest, you finally said, well, I played on, I, I, you know, I, led, I, led him, I led Betty on long enough. I got to finally you know, put a ring on it. I'm going to marry Veronica. And you do that, and ding, that moves her macro bar to a point where she gives you a combat buff, a permanent combat buff, a thousand gold, and a castle. Um, and the castle gives you all these other benefits for yourself. Um, but Betty, mm, Betty is unhappy with you. So she removes the buff from you that enhanced, um, you know, say your crafting abilities um, before. Um, and when, when she hears the marriage and it really sinks in and, and you haven't done any, you can remember, you could still make her happy somewhat by doing other things on her passion line, but say you don't do that and she really goes negative on you, she says, well, you can't craft crops in the dwarf village anymore. And that's a real problem for you because you really wanted that, but you made a choice. You made a choice and like in a big boy, you gotta live with that choice. Big boy or girl, you gotta live with that choice. But here's a twist. We will write different characters for these people. We would give them their own hopes and dreams, their feelings, you know. You know, there are different characters. We've written lots of different characters. There's Shodan and Elizabeth and, and um, Andrew Ryan. They all have different characters that are basically independent of any game systems. And people like them or hate them or like spending time or don't spend time with them. Well, independent of how you feel about them systemically, you're gonna feel about them, hopefully, if we do our job right, as people. So you may marry Veronica, but you may like Betty a lot more. And um, you're gonna have to live with that because you're gonna have to spend a lot of time. You know, she'll go on quests with you and things like that and spend time with you and interact with you. You're gonna have to think about that. And the player's gonna be sort of cho making choices between what he wants, sort of, you know, what character he likes, what character he likes to spend time with and what he needs to grow in this game. Um, fortunately, unlike life, you can replay it and marry the other one next time. Um, so with good writing, hopefully, players should be able to make, to have to balance physical gain versus these emotional fulfillment decisions. And with all these systems, your ability to play one off the other, the ability to you know, kind of keep people happy, but where these people kind of happy, those people are really happy, but by betraying friends they've had, moving their macro bars down, there will be false friends, leading people on, betrayals and reconciliations. You, know, you could, if you do your job right, end up simulating something along the lines of this. Um, or any other, any other sort of narrative experience where you have lots of people who are plotting against each other and playing one off each other. Um, you, can make, you can make, I think you could, with, within grasp, start to try to simulate something like that, but driven not by your TV set, driven by you. Um, let's talk about um, hidden passions. Hidden passions, so characters that, let's just say for argument's sake, have three passions at the beginning, but maybe they also have hidden passions, which are not revealed at first. Um, these are a resource. Knowing about people's hidden passions means you can impact upon them in different ways. If you don't know about the passion, you can't impact upon the passion. Um, and it's a resource that other characters can, characters can give you about themselves, depending on their macro bar, or you, they, can give you in, they can give you gossip about characters they know. Um, so let's say you've been, friend, you've been friends with Romeo the Elf. You've really grown his macro bar. And one of the, one of the thresholds is, hey, I, have, I know about this cool quest, why don't you come on it with me and we'll share the riches. So you go on the quest with Romeo and he like tells you all about himself, about his hopes and his dreams and how he really strangely hates dwarves in a creepy way. And he tells you he writes poetry and he reads you some of his poems, you really get to know him. And you're about to go in the dungeon and you go down the dungeon 
and you sort of uh, help him on the quest, complete the quest that moves his macro bar to another stage, ding, and he says, I'm gonna reveal to you one of my secret passions. I'm in love with Juliet the Orc. And so now you know a new passion about Romeo because you spend time with him, you've interacted with him, and you've given him what he wanted on his bars. And um, now you've got to make a decision because you know now that he's not going to like it when you, when you beat up on orcs because um, he's in love with Juliet the orcs. So you have to make some decisions. Do I continue this friendship with Romeo? Do I, do I abandon the orcs? Like, what do I do here? Um, and um, so you can see it's a new passion here. Um, so the orc reinforcements come in in this, in this dungeon and boom, one of them is Juliet. So now you have to make a decision about what you're going to do. Obviously, he's not going to kill her. What do you do? Um, but then you're on, say you're on the same quest with a different character. He doesn't care. It's just me. Let's go kill all those motherfuckers. Um, okay, so replayability. And that's central to this. Um, games we've made generally have had add-ons. I'm very fond of them, but they're add-ons. They're not add-ins. You add it to the end of the experience. Games like Civilization, XCOM add in to the situation, allow you, allow you to start the game over and play a very different feeling version of the game. So obviously the player will have each playthrough, they can choose different stars to befriend, different, different people to take on board, different people to turn against, and that's player driven. Um, they can um, support the same characters, but to different extents. Um, then let's talk about the passion pool. Okay, so let's say Frank the Orc actually has 10, we write, produce, record, cast, 10 different whole passion sets for him. But in each game, we only reveal three, we only get three. We choose at random, three of them. So like we all have different stages in our life where we care about different things. You're encountering Frank at a different stage of his life. He's still the same guy, he's still the same character. But at one point in his life, he cares about hating the elves, who temple of the old gods, and he wants to woo Barbara. But then he's married, and he still hates the elves, and, but he's, his marriage is not going the way he thought, so maybe he secretly loves Romeo the elf. And you know, he's, 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 he wants something different in his life now. And he also is, you know, he's looking to his retirement, he really wants a piece of the cat's eye medallion. And so he's a different guy this time, and he maybe have other secret passions. So that's, you know, when you come into the game, you'll still see the same people, but they may have different goals. Um, and of course we can make, over time, New passions, new characters, new quests, new factions, all those things available as time goes on. Um, so for instance, you add a new faction, the werewolves. The orc does not like werewolves, but one of the elves has a thing for one of the werewolves. So these are new passions you can play off. And the werewolves will have their own passions, of course. Um, okay, and this is not a promise of any kind. We have no idea whether we're doing anything like this, but let's talk about co-op multiplayer. So say my brother and I are playing the game together. And we have, in real life, we have a great relationship. But we come across some elves. He's done a lot of work befriending the elves. He spent a lot of resources befriending the elves. The elves hate me, they hate my guts. And they see me and they start, I get ambushed by the elves because I pissed off somebody's macro bar to a certain point where they've sent an ambush at me. And I'm on, you know, I'm on you know, the headset with my brother. He's in New Jersey, I'm in Boston. And I'm like, Stu, come on, the elves are attacking me, help me out. He's like, well, I don't know. I really, those elves have been pretty good to me. So, sorry, Ken. Um, and, you know, I'm dead. And he's like, 
hangs out with the elves. And you know, we may, we, if you ever play Diplomacy, which is one of my favorite games of all time, you know the effects of some of these betrayals that can happen in games. Um, one of my dearest friends in the world, I still kind of hate because of a game of Diplomacy, because it's the game relationship versus your personal relationship. So all these relationships, if you bring real people into it, I think can really expand to a whole new level. And that's it. Um, questions? Start there. In a lot of what you said, um, the NPCs were aware of all actions that were taken by the player. How will things like lying and um, taking actions in secret be managed in this kind of system? I, I haven't, I think it's a really good question. I think that's beyond the scope of what I've thought about yet. I think it's something you could, it could complicate things. It could also be a really cool thing, but I think that how information gets propagated, maybe. We need some kind of feedback about information propagating throughout the world. Maybe you have some ways to keep information from propagating. Maybe there's tools you could have for that. I think that it's a really interesting space. I just haven't thought it through yet. But it's a good question. Um, we'll, we'll go step to through. Hi there. So um, one potential issue I can see with this is that a lot of times in you know, stories and TV shows, the most interesting things are when a character feels very conflicted about another character. Like for example, when, when Deborah finds out that Dexter is a serial killer, sorry spoilers, uh, she's conflicted with her uh, police values, but also with her family values. And it seems like with your system, you would still have a sort of combinatorial explosion of uh, sort of art and voice acting and writing, because you need to sort of consider all these possibilities of every passion that each character might be in, not just the macro passion, but also the specific states of the non-macro passion. Yeah, I think there's a. I'm not in any way pretending there's a, there's a trivial amount of writing work to be done here. I think there's a substantial amount of writing work. The difference is because they bounce off each other and they, can, they play off each other, they're reusable. And they, and they can appear in different games, they can appear in different contexts, but there's still a full, plenty big writing job to be done here. I'm not trying to write less. I'm trying to write stuff that can be reused and replayed in different contexts, but you're completely right. And starting to track that combinatorial explosion is gonna be, I think, one of the first steps when you start doing the math to see how much stuff you can really support. But writing is relatively cheap. It's what, I, what excites me about this is the fact that it's different and it's driven by the player. So you, know, you, can, you have to scale that to taste and, and what you can afford. Gotcha, thanks. Thank you. Hi, uh, system sounds very interesting. The you know, likability of a star towards a player made me think a bit of Dragon Age Origins. And something that was kind of a letdown in that system was that I was never motivated for a character to dislike me, other than you know, player-imposed narrative. Yes. My guy's a paladin-type character, I'm not gonna like the witch. Yep. But in the end, I needed everyone to like me so I can get the benefits from them liking me, yep. so on and so forth. So I had to do actions that kind of went against my character to fulfill the game needs. How do you plan on balancing that or giving positive rewards for some players disliking you? Well, I don't, give, I don't think positive rewards for making people hate you is right. I think, I think the zero-sum game mm -hmm. is where that comes in. Because like, I was talking to a friend of mine about, he worked on a game, um, created a game called Dogs, he's right there. Um, and 
you know, the dog would like you or not like you depending on different things. But because the dog was the only actor in the world, you had that challenge. Exactly what you're talking about is like, what's the, you're not going to kick the dog in the face, you know? So like, how do you, how do you deal with that? And the, that's why the zero sum games are so important. Just like real life, you can be nice to somebody all day long. And just by being nice to that person and ignoring the other person, hey, you're, you're, you're doing game development and your wife's at home waiting for you. Ah, zero sum game. And that's the problem that I think we want to highlight. Because I don't think the choice of good and evil, to me, is always that challenging thing. It's like, well, I don't want to be a jerk, but just by what you don't do or what you do for others makes you a jerk to some people because they don't like it. Hey, you went to dinner with that guy? Fuck you. Um, and I think that's the heart of how you deal with that problem. Thank, Thank you. It sounded like um, sort Sorry of- Sorry about all the cursing, by the way. I'm a bit foul. <laughs> It sounded like um, your, your sort of stars were fixed characters, even though they were going to have like different passions every time you restarted the game. It sounded like Frank the Orc was always going to be the blacksmith in the shop. Maybe mm -hmm. I didn't get that. But um, so I was wondering, what are your thoughts on sort of having stars emerge based on who the player wants to interact with? So uh, I think that I, I mean, one thing I like about these sort of replayable games is they let you set all the sliders and all the variables. So you know, I don't think I'm. And a lot of things get trickier once you have things like leaderboards and achievements and stuff like that, but you can invalidate you know, the, it, those things for the purpose of a game. But I'm really a fan of saying, I want to play a game where Frank has these passions and this guy has these passions. If you want that, because it's your game. And the system, I'm like, well, you can't really do that in a game like Infinite, right? Um, this game, I think, would allow for that. So I, I, I'm, I, I support it in concept, absolutely, because I, that's the kind of games I love. I like setting every little checkbox myself. It makes, my, it, makes it the game mine. Um, so it seemed like there was a, might be a bit of a disconnect between the interesting dynamics of each quest and the somewhat selfish rewards you get for it, possibly a boost for a main quest. Mm -hmm. How do you think this game would work if you eliminate these reward boosts or even eliminate a main quest and, it was, and these side quests were the entire game? So I don't actually, like, so main quest is a really interesting question. I don't, do you need a main quest? I don't actually know. We've been talking about that. Like, because a main quest implies a, a macro narrative that moves on. And macro narrative fights against this sort of experimental game. Like, you know, again, going back to civilization, there's a macro narrative in the sense that you have five, six different, and I actually had a bunch of slides about this, but I thought it was beyond the scope of the talk, like wind conditions and things like that, potential wind conditions, because I thought that was game design, not a system design. So you could like say, I can win the world by destroying one of the villages. I, I can win the game by destroying the village. I can win it by making them all like me a certain amount, you know, by whatever. You, know, you can set different win conditions. Or you can sort of set a macro story. But I'd much rather have these events that happen, that change the dynamics, like the White Walker example I gave, than enforcing a story. Now, again, I don't know if that's going to work. Like, you know, and I, knowing myself, you, know, you, can, you always get drawn into what you know and what you do. So what we're, that's why we're sort of really trying to you know, reset here, because we've done the same thing for so long. So I think there's, my discipline is to always try to start with what do we need to make this a great game? And right now, I don't know if that's a macro story. The stories may all come out of these entirely player-driven experiences. 
So uh, how are you modeling uh, the passions? Um, there was a talk from the AI Summit two years ago by Stefan Bura from Storybricks. Yep, that I talked to Stefan. Yeah, presented kind of a great way of modeling passions. I was wondering how close it is to what he was talking about. So Stefan is one of those people who's out there that is thinking about these things, and we've had a bunch of conversations. Um, and I think that you know what I like about this is that there are people, and you know some other friends of mine in the industry are talking about this. Um, what I the sort of the place where I've been thinking, and we're actually going to get together later, um, that I've been thinking since I last talked to him, I sort of really focused on um, my focus has been on making rather than making characters with a range of emotions, making a characters with very few passions. These three passions and all these zero-sum game situations, because I'm probably less ambitious than he is to some degree. Um, and really, and as a writer, I'm like, how do, I, how do I make characters come out rather than people come out? Mm -hmm. So I think that's really where the direction I've been going in. That could, look, that could all change. He may, we may sit down and have lunch later. He may be like, you're a fucking idiot. Let me tell you why. And this whole talk is a waste of everybody's time. Um, but that's where, I, since our last conversation a couple of months ago, that's where I've really been going with this. And you know, we sort of, he and I have both been, tuned, I found, he called me after it was like, oh, I'm, I talked, I announced this talk. And he's like, I've been working on something very similar. So I think this is one of the reasons you want transparency here, you want openness, is you want to be able to talk. The reason I'm doing this talk is you want to engage everybody's brain, because I think it's an important problem. I, I think it's hard to say, it'd be hard to deny it's an important problem. And the more of us who are thinking about it, and that's why I wanted this, you know, out there, and it's pretty early, is so we can have lots of smart people like Stefan and, and you know, talking about this. Thanks. Uh, hi. Hi. What, what about uh, modifying passions? What if you could do something to convince Frank that elves aren't actually so bad? It could still be zero sum, because now the other orcs really hate both Frank and you. Yes, yeah, so I think that's a possibility. Like, my sense is that it, um, I'm not ready to play the drum fills yet. You know, I'm sort of getting the rhythm down. And so I think that's, you can, there's lots of ways to play on this system and to interact with the system. My first step, our team, um, I'm talking to, to Eric Erlin, who's our lead technology guy, about this a lot. It's like, I think the first step to modeling this is you design a paper and pen adventure, you use D20 system, right? You set up a bunch of quests, you set up a bunch of characters, passions, and the only thing you use a computer for in the first test is to track the passions and the macro passions and the, and the interactions of those, because that's a lot of data. But you could just with pen and paper start to play out this system and see how parsable it is and see how it works. And that's probably our first step before we even really touch a computer. You, know, you could probably do this in a database application. Um, and then we will we'll build from there, but you know, the options to expand upon it and play with it are infinite, presuming that you, you know, don't overflow what I call player RAM. Like how much, how much stuff can they keep in their head at once? And it may be a great idea and you may play with it. Well, just like all these ideas, it may be a great idea, you may play with it, it may be a terrible idea. It's hard to say until you try it. But it, that's one of the goals is, is a starting point. Right, yes. Um, so I'm a designer on the Civilization franchise, and I wanted to say how Sorry, say it again? Uh, designer on the Civilization franchise. Oh, well, I'm a fanboy. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm happy to hear that. Yeah, we're big fans of your work as well, and it's exciting to see your approach. Um, one of the things the macro sort of mood modifier reminds me of, especially is the sort of opinion system that we use in Civ. And um, I think 
the examples that you used um, are definitely the most, most colorful and interesting and kind of prone to narrative um, flavor when, you know, you have the one orc feeling this way and the other orc feeling this way and kind of like aligning the passions in such a way that, that the player works towards, um, you know, them really liking you or really disliking you. And I was wondering um, if you had thought about or if you have any um, ideas about how to kind of avoid um, a lot of the NPCs ending up in that kind of like middle gray space. Because like you, there are ways to solve it with like the combinatorial uh, writing explosion of like, yeah, maybe you built the temple for the old gods, but you did elf quests, so like you're in this neutral state sure. with this NPC, but it's kind of hard to reflect. Uh, for, for, I mean, to me, that's a balance problem because w what you, the rewards in the middle space are going to be pretty marginal, right? Versus the big rewards, you're going to have to really take some big swings with people. So you want gameplay to kind of drive players towards yeah. the edges. Okay. So, so you can keep, you know, getting 10, 5% price reductions at the store from everybody. That's not really going to move the needle. To really accomplish those larger quests, um, sorry, um, to really accomplish those larger quests, you're going to have to get people really passionate about you one way or the other. And as I said, the zero-sum games is going to lead to you make some real friends, you're going to make some real enemies. Yeah, and the transparency will help players get there. Exactly. Cool. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you for the talk. Uh, you talk a lot about how it's very player-focused, all the actions from the player, those decisions. But you also mentioned these hidden systems that you uncover. <coughs> Um, by having these relationships. And I'm curious, in minimal interaction, what happens when you see a confrontation and you step back? Um, do the AI find out hidden passions of each other on their own? Uh, what happens if you hide in the bushes during the events that are occurring? So a, a passion, remember, is as far as I think about it at this early stage, is only what a character feels about a situation in relationship to you and that you can impact upon. So, I mean, the notion of a player knowing about another player, a character knowing about another character's passion is relevant in how they talk about them. You know, we can you know, make colorful stuff. Yeah, I heard about Romeo, he's got weird tastes, you know. Um, or, as I said, he can reveal, potentially, if you, one of the people's macro bars could be revealing passion, a secret passion about somebody else. And that just basically is another meter you can push on. For them, so I don't know if it's meaning if there's like game there's you know systemic meaning in what you're talking about. I'm not saying there couldn't be, but as I'm thinking about it right now, I don't think it's I, like we when we did this thing and a, and a bunch of us worked on it. What we kept coming back to was it's very easy to step out of the system and start coming up with set five, yeah, St come up with narrative things that could happen. But we kept saying no, no, it has to come out of it has to spawn out of this system. And so you don't want to just sort of saying, oh, these guys start feeling this way about you, but independent of the passion system, because then you're just, you know, throwing, you're just sort of throwing artificial things into the mix. You're throwing in hacks, basically. And we want the system to work at a core basis. Not saying we can't expand the system, but we want everything to be driven from the core system. Thank okay. you. Thank you. Hello. Um, my question is about player choices. Mm -hmm. And like, um, I was wondering, like, um, there are for every simulationist or narrative-driven player who is all about like portraying the character in an RPG. There's quite a few more who are playing the game mostly because they can maybe like the choice system and they like how the system enables them to basically kill everyone, and they care not for who the for whom the blood flows. But I was wondering, um, how would you handle? It's a our dark question. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, how would you handle incons inconsistent player choices? In delivering, in delivering a co coherent narrative experience through a system without necessarily using a zero-sum game. 
So I think the biggest problem is going to come out with thresholding back and forth between like if you're constantly moving somebody back and forth towards a feeling towards you, you I think that you, you may find your, you know what I'm talking about? Like, well, I did this thing and he loves me and now he closes the store, now he opens the store, now he closes the store. Well, you could reflect that certainly in dialogue, like, dude, you're driving me crazy, but you could also potentially start putting in modifiers. Like once you get past a certain threshold, you know, on a positive, it's harder to make them dislike you. You've built up credibility and trust with them, but that would have to be transparent and systemic. Um, and I think you may want to do that to avoid situations like that. And when somebody hates you, you really got to work, but you can get them back, but you really, really got to work. We had a notion of locking at the end that you couldn't come back from it. And I think in my experience, you know, that's probably less interesting that if there's a way to come back to what's super hard, that would be kind of cool. That person probably always carry, you know, I, that negative um, mathematical twist we put on it will come across the narrative like, yeah, you know, okay, but I still don't trust you, you know, where if they got to the same point without going so negative, they wouldn't have that I still don't trust you line. They would just be like, okay, well, okay, I'll, I'll do this thing. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, um, I was wondering when would you think to input an end game of this system? Like, and what would you do for the player at the end? Would it be a Fallout style, like recapping of all the relationships you've I, built or? I, I, I think that's probably beyond the scope like of what I'm talking about because I think that's a game, that's a game design decision, like a, a particular game where this is a system, like, you know, how do you want to end it? There's a million ways you can end it. I don't actually think this dictates any of those things. You could, you could have a bunch of narrative events. You could have when certain thresholds are met, like I said, you could have when certain towns are destroyed. There's a million end games you could do. I think that's not what my first priority is. So all I can do is beg ignorance on this one and say that's something for the down the road. Yeah, so I've thought about similar systems quite a bit and I find it very interesting, but one of the conflicts I always find with it is that it seems very hard to design a sort of deeply thematic narrative that deals with these types of open-ended systems. Um, given that you've dealt a lot with deeply thematic narratives, do you see a solution to that or do you see these as sort of mutually exclusive types of narratives? Um, I think it's a really good question. And the honest, thanks. The honest answer is it's, it, it's hard to say and that's part of the experiment. Like I, I wanna get up here and say like, we could definitely have the best of both worlds, right? I don't know if I can say that yet because in the same way, like civilization has a narrative, right? It's this meta narrative. Sports have a narrative, right? When you play a, uh, when you play a football game, there's a bunch of rules, but it, it not only has a narrative, it has a meta narrative. Like, well, that guy just left the Giants and now he's on the Chargers out of team. Yeah, is that right? And, but, and so he's got this rivalry going. So there's a meta narrative and, his, and he just, fuck that guy's wife and like, oh my God, what's gonna happen on the field? Um, so there's a meta narrative around those things. And I think there will be a narrative that forms in this much more supportive than a civilization arc because of all these characters and the dialogue and the ability to have, you know, a multi-track multi feeling, player characters having multi-track feelings about you. I think that's gonna be a very interesting question. That's gonna be the goal. And we're just gonna have to see how that plays out. Um, it but it's a really good question. <laughs> but yes, it will. Totally. <laughs> Buy it. <laughs> yeah, so the world that you describe here would only change if the player decides to do something to change it. Um, but like something that, for instance, uh, Stalker 
in my opinion, did really well, or in a really interesting way, is that things happen even without you doing anything uh, about it. You know, the, the, the world itself is alive and changing uh, even when you're not there. Yeah. Uh, how would that, like, how would you implement that well, in a system like this? So the White Walkers example I gave is an interesting one. Of, that could be something that spawned off of a bunch of things you do, or we could just, you know, sometime roll the die or plan or, or authorially plan on it to happen. And you see a lot of, there are a lot of board games actually where events happen, like XCOM is a great example, where they sort of put a new template of event that comes in. And that changes how you have to play. So I, I don't know yet. I think it will allow for either one, I want to make sure the player feels that they're drive, that they are at the helm. On the other hand, you know, like, um, um, you know, I was talking to, to my friend Drew yesterday about Ned Stark, you know, and how Ned thinks he can play everybody off one another and everybody, he can keep everybody happy. And he finds out what happens if he tries to keep everybody happy. And then you have, but then you have situations that happen outside of your control. And I think that that is something interesting if you look at Game of Thrones, that's always happening. People think they have things in, in charge and then Tyrion comes in and shoots you in the gut with a crossbow. Um, and so I think you have to balance that to make sure the player still feels that they are the driving force in the world, but maybe you do want the White Walkers to appear by, the, by you know, fiat. Nice. All right, I think that's all we can do right now. Thanks guys of the industry and you know but um but never you know i i, I figured that was it you know i had sort of had my shot bite at the apple and you know i blew it and then um i went to like it's so interesting i went to you know you know the classic story of the high school reunion where the nerd goes back to the high school reunion but all of a sudden he's really successful and the right. jock is a loser well the opposite thing happened to me i went to my high school reunion and I actually ran into like the school jock, who's actually a super nice guy. Like, even though I was like a nerdy little dweeb, he was never mean to me. He was always very nice to me. They, not all of them were, but but he was actually very nice. And I ran to him and, you know, he looked great and he had his own business. He introduced me to his beautiful wife. And I, you know, wasn't happy where I was career-wise or romantically at the point. And I was like, oh my God, like the thing I thought was gonna happen, happened in reverse. And, um, and I sort of decided like, okay, like you gotta, figure this out. And, um, you know, I tried, I, at that point I tried to sort of come back and make it as a playwright, but writing straight plays is not, is not really a, you know, it's a very hard to break into that business. So I was in New York trying to do that. And, um, and I was like, well, I, I've always played games. You know, I had always, ever since I was a little kid, I was playing games before, you know, I used to go to the arcade before there were you know, prior to Pong, where there was like electro, you know, pinball machines and these sort of electromechanical machines. Um, you know, it's hard even to describe it. You have this whole baseball game where a big like pinball with like, like a drawing of like a little drawing of a play field and this ball would come out next to the drawing of the pitcher and you have to swing the bat and you're basically aiming for various targets and they're all like a pinball, like a pinball machine. You had a lot of machines like that. If you remember in Jaws, that movie, like there's like a little arcade game where you're shooting at a shark. Yeah. Like, you know, and that's just basically a bunch of lit up drawings, essentially. And I loved all that stuff. And then, you know, then video games came along um, and I was just, you know, blown away. I was just like immediately obsessed. Um, you know, so I was there for, you know, um, Pong and, and Pac-Man. And, and um, I think, you know, Asteroids was huge for me. There was this bowling alley up by my house where I, I was a kid and this was the seventies. So or early eight, late seventies. So life was a little different back then. So me and my friends should like go and, like steal packs of cigarettes from his mom's house and then like 
take some quarters and go up to the bowling alley. Nobody cared. Like we'd be, you know, these 12 year olds smoking cigarettes, playing asteroids. And, <laughs> uh, and we probably weren't really even smoking them. We we're probably just, you know, like, you know, not even yeah, like puffing them or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Coughing out and spitting because we were trying to be cool. Um, you know, there was a movie called the bad news bears back then where, um, the kid who played, um, there's this really cool kid who smoked it, had a motorcycle. was like 13. It was Jackie R. Haley who ended up playing, um, um, Rorschach. Now as an adult, he played Rorschach in, um, in Watchmen. Cotter. Uh, oh, in Watchmen. In what? In, in what? No, no, Rorschach in Watchmen. Oh, Rorschach. Oh, okay. Rorschach in Watchmen. I thought you said Rorschach for some reason. Rorschach in Watchmen. So, yeah, so you do know this thing. Um, yeah, Watchmen. Yeah. I actually only am familiar with it through the HBO series, I think. I don't even think. No, you're breaking my heart here. Um, I'm sorry to hear that. The, um, and so, you know, I had always loved, I had always loved games. And then I thought, well, you've always loved games, you know, and I, I had had, you know, I've been playing games my whole life. And then, you know, I had, um, and I remember like borrowing a friend's PC, you know, in the nineties and like civilization and XCOM and, you know, all those inc incredible games and Ultima Underworld was, I was a game that really impacted me. Um, if you guys don't know, that was a game from a company called Looking Glass, um, Prior to System Shock, and you know, one of the first games, the first game I'm certain, one of the first games I'm known for is a game called System Shock 2. But I played this game, Ultima Underworld, which they did before the System Shock franchise. And that was the first, I guess, what you call immersive, what you call now an immersive sim. And um, it's like a dungeon crawler, but instead of, you know, overhead view or sort of tile by tile view, they used to have these games where you sort of move the dungeon like one square at a time. There was, there was it wasn't fully 3D at all like wizardry and games like that. Um, and I remember playing that game and realizing, oh my God, like this game lets you tell your own stories. Like it lets you experience events that nobody else is experiencing. And that, that notion of, you know, the term um, emergence, right. was such an eye opener. I still remember the moment I played and realized what that was doing. And it was, you know, if you look at it now, it's incredibly crude. Um, you know, you could even probably show screenshots of what it looked like. You know, it was like had a rendering window like this big and the rest of the screen was like, you know, like interface. But, oh, my God. Um, and I was then I became a huge fan of that company. And then, you know, cut to years later, you know, I had I was disappointed in my life. I'd come back from that, you know, from that reunion. And I was like, what if I try to get into games? Maybe this is, you know, place for me. And pretty much I applied to Looking Glass and they, to my great surprise, offered to fly me up there, you know, from New York to Boston to have an interview. And I went up and I interviewed all day and I met everybody. And to my great surprise, I, I got the job. Um, and that's how I got in. And then I, you know, started working on a game that with Doug Church that eventually became Thief, um, the original Thief. And I got to, you know, see a game from the very beginning. And I was there for about a year and a half. And then I decided, you know, sort of, I'm not sure, um, for reasons that probably would evade me now, but to um, go off and start my own, uh, my own company with two partners with um, a guy named Rob Fermier and a guy named John Che. And we started Irrational. And then we ended up working again with Looking Glass to do this game, System Shop 2, which sort of put us on the map. And then, um, you know, I don't know how much detail you want, but, you know, then Bioshock and a bunch of games and Bioshock and Bioshock Infinite. And, you know, here we are. Yeah, it's it's interesting because my my history with you begins with Bioshock. Um, and as I said earlier, it's one, I, I can say this with great confidence being in the industry for so long from the media point of view, I guess, is that there are very few games and you must know this regardless of 
you know, it, it's not quite as prodigious in sales as, as other Take-Two products or some other Take-Two products or whatever, but it's one of those persistent games that everyone loves and talks about. I mean, it's, it's an influential dynamo. And I remember when it came out, I, was, I had just started a full-time at IGN when it came out and it completely bowled the office over. And, and it remains one of those games that I think really tells a story and, and, emerge, and immerses people in a way that still really isn't matched today. And I wonder, you know, you said quite a bit about Bioshock and Bioshock's been written about and covered quite a bit. So I don't want to, you know, retread too much ground, but are you surprised by how resonant that game is still today and how influential and important it is? It makes people want to make games. I mean, that's a, that's a game that a lot of people even cite. Well, somebody told me recently, and this I, nobody had told me, I've never gotten this one before, that they grew up, you know, they, they were young when it came out. They were like, um, you know, it was 15 years ago. So they were like, um, you know, in their teens or something when it came out, their early 20s, maybe at most. And now they're playing it with their kid. Um, their kid's old enough, like 10 or 12 now, and they're playing it together. And um, that's cool, you know, because then it's like another generation. But yeah, I mean, you never, I, I don't think it's possible. I've never been a person who was working on a project and I'm like, Oh uh, yeah, I'm confident this is going to change the world. Sometimes you get a feeling like you're you're working on something cool, and sometimes you're working. But most often you're working on something that you might think is cool, but nobody else seems to think it's cool. Mm. Like nobody thought System Shock Two was going to have an influence. You know, none of us. We, we were just like trying to get it done, honestly. And Bioshock, I think we started to get the idea that people it was going to be important to people with the first hands-on event we did in New York. We had this big event and a lot of the press was there. And I had, you know, I had, I had demonstrated a whole bunch of games. You know, this probably, that's like my fifth or sixth game or something I had worked on. And so I had, you know, and I had done press on all those games and, um, you know, you see a range of things where people are like, Oh, it's cool. You know, we had a game like tries vengeance or say, um, you know, which people are like, oh, it's for Freedom Force. People liked, you know, they liked it. But there was something about Bioshock that was just really um, landing with people. Though, you know, we don't like to get ahead of our skis on these things. So we just, you know, we're just like, I was mostly focused on what can, you know, we still have a little time left. Is there anything I can learn from this event? How to make the game better? Because, you know, I'm I'm very interested in talking to people who play our games. We do a lot of play tests. Not like, we don't do tests like, before the game's design, we don't like ask people what kind of game they want to play. But once it's right. getting solidified, we really like to put it in people's hands because it's really hard to have perspective on your own thing. Um, and so we, 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 you know, on Judas, we've been having people play it for a couple of years now um, and getting feedback. And we're getting, we continue and we'll just keep ramping up the number of people who play it. So by the time it launches, hopefully we'll have enough critical mass of people who played it that we have a reasonable understanding of what people's sense of it is. Well, congratulations, by the way, on the game not leaking, authentically not <laughs> leaking. People didn't know, you know, you I told know. me a little bit about it. You told me the name about it a while ago. I wasn't going to obviously say anything, but I was, I'm always surprised. Like people tell me things and then you see them pop up, you know, and I was really happy for you that you got that pop. Without, I gotta say, I, 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 there are people I've talked to over the years like you or like, you know, Ryan or somebody like that, you know, who, who had seen the game and, and people worked on the game too, you know, people, it's been a long time. So there are people mm -hmm. who've been on the team and people moved on, whatever, but nobody ever leaked it. And I really, you know, to everybody who knew about it, I, I gotta say, you know, I really appreciate it because it's, it, it, I think it's pretty heartbreaking when stuff gets leaked out when the team's working on it and it can't be shown in its proper light. Um, I think that's really hard on a team. And I think that, 
it's, I understand why it happens. I understand the, you know, the sort of the business incentives of, you know, various press outlets and stuff, but it's, I think it's hard on the team. It really is. Yeah. It's, uh, I, my, my whole thing has always been, if people su- supply me with information and it's like good enough to verify with a second or third source and go live with that, I will. But if people are trusting me to see things off the record, that's different. You know, that's just always been my line in the sand. But, um, I wanted to, I wanted to ask you this and I, I didn't know how else to put it. So I wrote it like this in my notes. I, I called Bioshock as having a sort of sophistication. I wonder if you agree with that, that 15 years later, that the game is kind of sophisticated, not only from its subject matter, but just the way it's delivered. My brother and I, who do a podcast, a retro podcast together, played it a couple of years ago um, together, you know, like uh, and individually and did a conversation about it. And I was so happy to introduce him to it. And he loved it. And um, we were marveling and I still marvel today about how some simple decisions like audio diaries really help keep the game going. It's kinetic, yet really deep and still really fun. And when the special edition or the PS4 updated version or whatever came out, I was so thrilled to play it again. In fact, I think this is the game we always talk about, about wishing you can kind of blink it out of existence in your mind so you can experience it again for the first time. I think it, I really do think it has that level of sophistication. I wonder if you agree or if you kind of hear that kind of feedback on Bioshock. It kind of stands above a lot of other games in this regard. I mean, I think people play and I play different games for different reasons. You know, like I play Mario just for the pure, unadulterated, brilliant, you know, design and the understanding of mechanic and how to build on mechanics and build on player knowledge and and have them exploit mechanics, combine mechanics, and all that genius that you know Miyamoto and his people like him bring to the table. Um, um, for Bioshock, I, I don't know if sophistication is the right thing. I think primarily the difference is, is a, I came to the industry with a different set of um, books, movies, and TV shows than a lot of game developers do. So I never really read um, a lot of science fiction or fantasy, for instance. I saw a lot of movies like that, but, and I played Dungeons and Dragons and I played video games, but for some reason, um, you know, I was a, I was a drama major in college. And so, you know, I was reading, you know, Tennessee Williams and, 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 you know, and, um, Euripides and, you know, all, all this stuff that I had to for my classes. And, you know, I was exposed to like German expressionism and, and, you know, various types of architecture and set design classes and things like that. So is that where the art deco comes from and all that? that you, well, I'll tell you, you where, I can tell you in a minute where the art deco yeah. specifically came from. Um, and um, and so, you know, and the kind of movies I watch, you know, like the Manchurian Candidate was, you know, a fair movie of mine. And, you know, I love like the Coen brothers and Paul Thomas Anderson. I, and it's weird because I am not a highbrow in music. I'm not a highbrow in games like I like pop like I like all kinds of music, including like the worst, like the dumbest country or pop or, or whatever. I'll, I, I'm not a snob. I'm not a snob when it comes to um, games at all. Like I, I'm not a, like a, I got to play all kinds of games. I'll play anything. And I like, I like, you know, sort of, um, you know, I'll play a gone home or I'll play, you know, you know, serious Sam or I'll play, you know, Mario or I'll play whatever. I'll play anything because I just love games. But I think that my interest in sort of theater and 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 movies were sort of a little different than some people's. And I brought a lot of those influences into what I do. And that's why it felt I'd say it probably feels different. I don't know if it's more sophisticated or less sophisticated or whatever, but it definitely feels a little different because of that. It's interesting to me because. It's another take to publish or 2K publish game in Spec Ops The Line, who Walt Williams wrote, who wrote, worked with you on the original or worked under you on the original Bioshock. 
he would he, i actually interviewed him for a book that i ended up never writing um but i wrote a sample chapter for uh the publisher i was working for or work going to do it for and we did it about bioshock um and i wish i still had the original like transcripts of it i don't but i do remember very clearly him going on and on about the influence of seeing something so finely done and how i saw an echo in spec ops the line simply in the meaningful nature of the story um and so i think there is something really interesting genetically in irrational and in bioshock that kind of spread its tendrils just w- w- in a few different ways i yeah, hope i hope i'm remembering this correctly so walt could correct me if, if i'm not but i remember walt came in i think he was at that point just a like a sort of junior producer at 2k mm-hmm. and he came out to boston from san francisco i think and he stayed in the you know he stayed out with us and he helped out in a bunch of tasks but i remember and god walt if i if i'm remembering this incorrectly let me know but i remember he was taking screenshots for press and he brought them to me. And I think what he might meant is that I kept rejecting the screenshots. Um, and I think that, I think he told me afterwards that that process was both really frustrating for him and eye opening for him at the same time, because I am, I will iterate on something past anybody's sanity, you know? I am. I have an obsession for detail. Um, in some ways, in like the other case, cases, I like my scripts. When I write them and turn them in, they have to be completely like copy checked, and because I write, I have to make a million typos. But when I'm looking at the screen, um, I am. I am sort of this tireless obsession with details, and it drives people insane. But I want. But I. I. I, don't, I have an ability to see the game as a gamer sees it. Like rather than somebody who's seen it a thousand times, I, I think I'm pretty good at clearing out my brain and just coming at it fresh. Like if I just opened that issue of Game Informer or whatever, and I was looking at that screenshot, I'm like, oh, what does it look like to a gamer? You know, mm. and that can be exhausting to be around. I think, and if I recall, I exhausted the hell out of Walt. But I seem to remember at the end, he was like, okay, I think I get, you know, I get why you, you're this way. Um, but I think it can be, you know it's not always super exciting to be around because sometimes people just want to go home. You know, they don't want to do the 50th pass on something, but I'm, but I, you know, I generally find the only way to get the quality level. I don't have like some kind of like special genius. I just like have an obsession with detail that I'm willing to do it and do it and look at it and look at it and write it and rewrite it over and over again. Cause first time out, I'm like anybody else. I'm just gonna, I'm not that good, you know? So I just make up for it with, you know, I just never get out of the pool. Yeah, I wanted to ask you a little bit about that later because I have some notes about um, kind of the way the press is written about you and sure. some stories told about you. I'm very interested in knowing more about that as well from your perspective. Yep. Um, speaking of the original Bioshock, I mean, 15 years on, as we keep saying, what what in your mind is the what were you trying to say in that game? What what was it? Is, is your answer the same today as it would be back then? I mean, from my perspective, it's obviously Randian libertarianism run amok, obviously. But what I liked about it was that I don't think it was necessarily, at least from my perspective, lampooning it. It was simply one version of it. And um, I think some people misunderstood a lot of that in the, in the game. Um, But I, and you can tell me if I'm wrong about that, but also it's about, you know, class and economics. I I don't uh, capitalism. I wonder what were you trying to say with that game? I mean, I don't think there's any, I, part of, you know, there's this great saying that I, somebody said, I write so I know what I'm thinking, you know, 
it's a way to organize your own thoughts. And mm-hmm. so I don't go into things with an axe to grind. I think one of the reasons I've never met a libertarian, I've never met a, well, Ram, Ram would, would not agree that she's a libertarian, right? So right. like an objectivist, people, right? I never <laughs> met an objectivist or a libertarian because, you know, I, I think they're probably closer than Rand might admit because I think she was protecting her brand to some degree. I've never met an objectivist who, who objected to the game <laughs> um, because I think they, I think we tried to give it not a fair shot because I'm not a, I'm not like the referee. I try to understand, look, if you're going to write characters, can't judge them. You know, you have, even if you're writing the most evil, you know, motherfucker in the universe, can I curse on this thing? Cause I yes. don't yep, absolutely. You know, the you know, most evil person in the universe, they've always, they're the hero of their own story. That doesn't mean they're a hero. I mean, they perceive themselves as the hero of their own story. And I think that if you, if you don't try to understand where sort of bad outcomes come from, especially in yourself, um, you know, you can find, end up in a lot of bad outcomes. And so I, I like to write stories where I don't really like to write about villains, you know, cause I, I don't know what a villain is. I know there are people who end up doing things that are quite villainous. Right. Um, but how did they get there is what's interesting to me because that's how you understand, you know, if you can predict, you know, where society is going or you can predict where people are going, it's because you know where they've been. I mean, I was talking to somebody recently who works in um, machine learning and um, they have a business where they predict terrorist attacks. And the way they do that is they don't predict anything. They look at the past. They have massive, you know, basically, basically since the advent of social media, you, um, you have a huge amount of data about, you know, chatter on the Internet. And you see patterns, you can start to detect, you know, you see, you go back in the past and you say, well, there was this event that happened here in 2012 or whatever. And let's go look at the, um, and here's an event that happened in 2009. Here's an event that happened here. And you start seeing, looking for similar, you know, basically waveforms in the, in the conversation. And then you can predict the future, you know, with a fair degree of accuracy based upon, um, based upon the past. And so I, I think the reason the games can sort of, become somewhat, you know, believable, can become more believable than say some games is because I spent a lot of time thinking about the past and sort of dissecting the past. I read a lot of history. Um, I think that also is another reason our games are a little different um, is I read a lot of sort of social history and military history. And um, you can definitely see that in Bioshock Infinite, I think. <clears throat> yeah. Knowing, you know, when I was, a, I, I didn't know much about that. that specific, I knew about World War One, but I didn't know much about like Fendi Asiak. And you know, and the and the gold and the and the um in the Gilded Age, um, if I mispronounce that French, that I took six years for French and I still can't pronounce anything. Um, I hear you. <laughs> so um, I, I think that it's it was it was you know it's all my weird nerdy hobbies coming together. So mm. I don't really try to say anything. I'm like, well, what do I know something about, and how can I leverage that to tell a cool story? Um, but at the end of the day all the history and all the architecture and all the art and all the whatever, it has to be in service of people, you know, characters, characters are everything um, and telling cool stories. I wanted to double back on something I'd mentioned earlier, but I, cause I wanted to get your, your take on this in, in a more, in a more thorough way, which is the audio diary. Like the choice of doing an audio diary is always sticks with me as someone who, again, we write, I write, I write our games, but they're old school games. So we don't have an opportunity to do audio, but, I feel like this is such a clever and like I said, kinetic way 
to do things. And it still frustrates me um, when games have really thick, beautiful worlds. Like I think about a game like Control. I don't know if you played that game. Um, and there's just so much in it, but it is so much reading. And I remember preparing for our spoiler cast. I read it for hours and hours. And I still didn't get through all of the documents and I was confused. And then I was remarking and thinking about a game like Bioshock or like some other games where it's like it kind of keeps it simple, but it's progressing you in a very it, it's not very linear either, but it's it's just like this is the way it's going to go. You're alone. It's haunting and you're hearing this. And it maybe doesn't make a lot of sense when you think about it, about why would people just be talking into these things and leaving them all over the place? But it serves the game. And I love it. I love it so much more than written journals or playing Resident Evil and finding clues and newspapers and stuff. I don't know. Is that something that you take away as a as a I think that's one of the big revel and not that it was the first to necessarily do it, but that's a big revel uh, revolution for me in Bioshock and Bioshock Infinite. Well, I just want to be clear, I didn't invent this. I think this was Austin Grossman in System Shock One, the writer. So I think he invented it, or maybe somebody else, but I, I would definitely not credit myself. So we I, I put them in System Shock Two, but they were all already in System Shock One. Actually, the first version of System Shock One came out on floppy disk and they just had text audio diaries and then the CD version came out and that's when I first played it. And I remember hearing the performances, they were all done by people at the studio. It wasn't like professional actors, but the naturalism of it, you know, this sort of, and I had never seen that in a game, just like, Oh, I believe these people exist. Like these seem like normal people with caught Absolutely. up in a terrible situation. And I love the notion of normal people caught up in a terrible situation. I think all situations that are terrible are normal people caught up in a terrible situation. Nobody's born a warrior, you know, nobody's born, you know, a, a leader, you, you, you end up in situations and then you've kind of got to figure it out. And I, I love the feeling of that. And I've never seen that in a game. So I think the special genius of it that, you know, that Austin invented is because it's spoken, it can't be very long. And it forces you as a writer, like they're like, I can't remember. We, I, I had um, Drew Mitchell, writer in the, um, my, my, my right hand guy on the writing side on, on, um, on Judas. I said, like, you know, we we like we were writing up some new audio logs for the game. And um, and I said, well, let's, how long were the ones in Bioshock? Because that seemed like they're about the right length. Mm -hmm. And they're only like 100 words or something. They're not very long. And yeah, so you got to be judicious with what you're saying. You really yeah. got to write those and rewrite those. Now, you have some advantages because they're sort of confessional. Mm -hmm. People can speak. Like, if you try to write them... Like a lot of young writers come to it, try to write dialogue scenes and audio logs, and you got to use those really sparingly because it's like, who am I listening to, right? Um, and and dialogue is you can get that anywhere, but in an audio log, somebody's telling you that it's like a monologue, right? It's a soliloquy from a Shakespeare play. I mean, not the quality level, but the um, you know the sort of delivery mechanism, mm -hmm. and it's really useful for getting across character. And, um, and I find actors really take to them. I, I've rarely met an actor who knew what they were doing, couldn't really nail great work in an audio log because it's, 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 a, it's a monologue, right? And actors love monologues. And most of them have done a lot, practice on monologues, a lot more they practice on dialogue as you do it by yourself. Yeah, it's, it seems to me that it, it also does something very basic, which is it just respects the medium of video games by... Not to say that text heavy things don't respect video games. That's cool, too. But by saying, like, keep playing, keep going, pick me up, hold down the button yeah. and then just keep exploring. And I just think that that little that little thing really helped make Bioshock, you know, the game it is because it doesn't slow people down. It doesn't bog them down, because as much as I love a game like Control and it's not that you're on Control, I think that game's awesome. It's just like, wow, this is a lot. <laughs> This is a lot you're trying to tell me here. I'm sure you've heard that expression. It's about respecting the gamer's time. And I mm -hmm. really... 
try. I don't like games that don't respect my time. Like I used to hate in like, like I remember I played, I loved Final Fantasy Tactics, but I remember going through the cutscenes. and I'm not a, strangely, I'm not a big narrative guy in games. I tend to play a lot of strategy games and a lot of low narrative games. I get my narrative interests mostly go in movies and things like that. Um, but um, um, I, I find that um, you really have to respect the gamer's time. And so audio logs do well with that because you can, mm-hmm. as you said, you can just keep keep on trucking. You have to sit and wait for the story. So right. I don't like cutscenes. I don't put a lot of cutscenes in our games because I don't, I want the, I want to keep playing when I play a game, but that's not for everybody. Like, you know, Neil Druckmann will write a game and write these brilliant, you know, long cutscenes that people love to watch. It's right. just, it's just, I'm a, I'm a nerdy, like I'm more of a just gamer and I like to, I like, I like, you know, keep going, keep going, keep going. Yeah. I'm, I'm the same way. I, I love, uh, you know, I always talk that Far Cry, I'm like a huge Far Cry fan. That's like the perfect kind of like popcorn. Yep. You know, I just want to kind of play. I don't even care what the story is. The, yep. the characters are cool. The world's cool. Um, so Bioshock coming come out in 2007 and, you know, expression and politicization of the industry being what it is today, I think, and how things have kind of changed. I wonder, was broaching even kind of basic topics like class? Was that something that? take two as a publisher had any problem with or were they kind of like do your thing because i feel like there's this argument or this not argument there's this um there's this feeling that companies don't lean into topics that could be divisive or political but i think that the the good publishers let their creatives do what they want so i wonder was there any pushback that back then because it was very different then yeah well so it wasn't really about, well it was sort of about class it was indirectly about class because the little sisters the fact that you you know could harvest the little sisters um that almost, that almost, the publisher almost, um, 2K almost put their foot down and said no. But we had a guy there at the publisher who was sort of the creative director at the publisher. I'm not sure it was exact how. It was a guy named Greg Gobi. And Greg really believed in the game. He was like this crazy French guy. And he was like very passionate, very, very smart. Um, you don't often have like publishing side producers who are really into like, like Greg came out and worked at the studio for months on the game, you know, like he was very into it and very helpful, very, very smart. And, um, he, he said, this game doesn't exist without that concept. Um, because like you said, it's, it, it, it was about class, right? The fact that, that powerful people could use, you know, I, I, I it was like the metaphor is like, what is the worst possible expression of sort of unregulated society we can come up with. And we never intended to be, it's a metaphor, right? You know, like, um, it's, a, it's a, like, it worked very well because it was so shocking, I think, to the concept. But, you know, it happens, you know, like when you get, you know, when big factories, you know, making a, you know, a super fun site out of a river, you know, kids, they're, you know, what happened in Flint, you know, the people suffer. Right. Um, and so I was trying to just, you know, do a, a metaphor for an exaggerated metaphor, right. You know, there's no, I, you know, obviously the city at the bottom of the ocean was ridiculous as a concept. You know, it's, that's built like skyscrapers is ridiculous. I mean, physics would not allow, like, you know, we talked about like, Oh, you can't have skyscrapers out of the ocean. They, get, they would get crushed in a second. Right, right. And I was like, yeah, I know. But I think the gamers will understand it's a metaphor. And, and so we try to make it very believable once you're in the city that this was a living place and that, you know, there, there were people went to work and people fell in love and people did all those things in, in rapture. But 
it didn't have to be like purely naturalistic. And those exaggerations help you tell stories, especially in games where, you know, you don't have the, like, it'd be hard for me to do a game as naturalistic as say last of us, even though it's fantastical, you know, the world is very naturalistic, right? Mm -hmm. The zombies are the only fantastical element in that game. Um, but I was able to use so, the larger than life nature of the world to help tell the story and not have to stop and explain everything through cutscenes. We could explain a lot of the world just visually. Um, and that was super exciting. Uh, to get back to your question about um, Art Deco, that came out yep. of a visit. We were struggling to figure out the look of the game. And, you know, we hadn't really done a game that was super known for its visuals at that point. And I ended up in New York and I grew up near New York, so I knew it very well. And my wife and I were on a trip and we just wandered into Rockefeller Center. Are you familiar? You're familiar. You're familiar. Yeah, I'm from Long Island. So yeah, I'm familiar. Yeah. Long Island. Sorry, sorry. So you know yeah. Rockefeller Center. And I wandered back into there and I always loved it as a kid. And for those who haven't been there, it's basically the only, I think it's the only like full city block that is all the same architecture, like designed by the same architects mm -hmm. and all in Art Deco, all in that style. And I looked around and I'm like, oh, so, it, so it's monolithic in its design. I looked around, I said, huh, this is really cool. And I looked at all the buildings and I looked at how square everything was, how, you know, Art Deco was quite sort of simplest. It's quite simple in a lot of ways. That's sort of the point of it. It's, you know, we moved away from Art Nouveau and all the stuff that, that was much more, had lots of squiggly bits. And I was like, this could render really well on the, you know, the level we're in Unreal Engine 2.5 on the Xbox right. 360. It was, you know, early days. It was 15 years ago. And I was like, how do we make this look great? And that simplicity of the design really lend itself to it. So it was like a gift. And we, I went back, you know, my wife and I grabbed, bought cameras, those little, back then you didn't have phone cameras. So you just had, you buy those little cardboard cameras, you know, right, right. we took just tons of pictures of like, you know, there's a, a lighting fixture that looks amazing. There's a door handle that looks amazing. There's that building, there's a statue, you know, there's this painting. Um, and we just brought it back to the team. And I said, this, this is like rapture. And I think most people, Got it quickly. I'm sure some people are like, well, you know, what are you talking about? Um, but we started working on it and we just stayed in one room for like a couple of months, actually. And because we were we were all over the place before that, I said, no, we're just going to stay in one room and we're going to get this room right. And then we're going to propagate it out. And um, that's what we did. Yeah, it's there's there's iconic parts of that game to me, even just thinking about the opening area with like the different medical offices and. I don't know. It's th that game to me. It, it, I'm a big fan of publisher or developers going back and remaking and, and reshaping their games for future systems and all of that. But that's one of those games that I think just just lines up perfectly and um, still looks great today, obviously. And um, I wonder with do you feel like. Um, was it difficult to follow a game like that up with uh, with a game like Bioshock Infinite or, or did you like. How do you follow something like that up? I, I imagine it's not easy, and it wasn't easy. We we know based on stories yeah. that have been written about it. But you're going to was it kind of like in the post release environment? You're going to play the world's smallest violin for me. But yeah, it, it is hard. This I, I know how dumb this sounds, right? I, I get it. Like I'm super lucky to have a game that was that successful, but it does sort of trap you in a way, right? Because you're okay. I've done that thing now, and now I've got to do it again, right? And 
before, you know, my, my expectation was like with Bioshock, I remember my you know, co-founder of Rational, John Shea, and I used to joke like, oh, if we sell a million copies of a game, like we'll be, our lives will end, you know, then and we'll be perfectly happy. But it sold, you know, a lot more than that. And then it's like, well, what if you don't sell as much as that again? Like, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. And um, it, I think it, it can lead to some unhealthy thinking about competing with yourself. And certainly I remember I came in to, we'd had the, the announce event in New York in 2009 and um, a very nice, I want, I want, I want out of here because I don't know if he, if he wants a story talking about one of, one of my favorite editors of, you know, I don't think he's in the business anymore. Um, that told me, he goes, Ken, you know, they were all supporting you last time because you were an underdog and this time they're going to come after you. And I was like, uh, he's probably right. And, you know, and that's, that's the natural cycle of things. I wasn't like, you know, I wasn't singled out. That's just a natural cycle. You know, everybody's rooting for the underdog. And then if they have a big success, then sort of everybody's looking for them to, you know, maybe, you know, stumble a little. It's a totally natural thing. I'm not, I'm not blaming anybody. And I had decided, and this was in, on me, that, you know, I wanted the game. I wanted even a bigger audience. Like I wanted to like, Call of Duty kind of big blockbuster. And so a lot of Infinite mm-hmm. was designed to try to appeal to an even a broader audience. And um, the problem was, is that that's really wasn't the type of gamer I was. I don't play a lot of like big, I mean, I played all those games. I just not like, I don't play a lot of multiplayer games. I'm not very good at it. And I tend to like weirder, nerdier games. Um, you know, I play mostly like indie, you know, roguelikes and, strategy games and XCOM and, um, you know, weird. Oh, you, you like Midnight Suns? That's the big one, right? Oh, I love Midnight about. Suns. Yeah. I yeah. was talking to Jake a few weeks ago. I, you know, Jay, I'm a huge fan of Jake Solomon. He's, he's a genius and whatever he's doing next, I'm, you know, I'll be first in line. Cause yeah, I'm excited to see what he does now. Yeah. That was, that was interesting that he left. Yeah. Yeah. He, he, um, you know, I think he wants to, you know, try something different and I get that. Um, but you know, he's the guy who took, you know, XCOM and, my favorite game of all time and then actually remade it even better, which is like almost impossible to do because, you know, it's such a great game. Um, but, um, yeah, so I think I sort of became my own worst enemy a little bit in that. And I, one of the reasons I stopped doing Bioshock games after like that is like, okay, you can't lean on something. You, you know, you've got to, you got to, you can't compete with against yourself again. That's not very, that's not a very healthy way to live your life. So, you know, I was not, I was, I was not, looking to do another Bioshock game. I have nothing against Bioshock. It just, it wasn't super fun to work on it because I, I sort of built a trap for myself. Yeah, that's interesting. I, um, cause it's funny in some ways talking about how people are going to go or be harder on you or go after you. Also, I think the kind of consciousness of games media, the Kotakuization or the polygonization, I think of video games media at that time made the intersection of your game and its subject matter in, in infinite, I think kind of line up in an interesting way with forcing people to, I guess, confront some different issues and, and write about them sometimes fairly and sometimes unfairly. I mean, people to this day talk about the supposed racism of Bioshock Infinite or, or whatever the case might be in these different things. So it's, it's interesting that it kind of lined up exactly the way you thought it would, which, or that that person thought it would for you. And I should say, and that it was going to become more difficult for you. I want to ask you about Bioshock Infinite in terms of, I, I think you and I share this, I get I get this from you. I don't know if this is true or not. Do you find like American history in the United States specifically interesting um, pieces of story to play around with? Like, 
the fall of America, uh, uh, alternate history of America, um, the fracturing of America. All these things are kind of interesting. And I think I think Bioshock Infinite touches on a lot of this stuff, especially through the lens of like the Indian Wars and on this very interesting stuff. So do you find that to be a fun playground for you for for that specific game? Because I find Bioshock Infinite setting to be, you know, Columbia is awesome, but that it's American and and a bastardization of America specifically similar to a bastardization of Randianism, I think was was a real great draw. And I just I loved that game. And I, I wonder if that was if that was like something that was intentional for you, the United States specifically. Um, I think like we were just trying to figure out what Bioshock Infinite was, right? Cause we didn't want to do Rapture again. Mm-hmm. Um, because I kind of felt that one of the big draws of Bioshock was a new world to come to. Right now that said, we really gave ourselves a lot of problems there because coming up with a whole nother aesthetic and another setting, a whole new set of characters, you know, it's like, no, there's barely, there's like, uh, is there a single character overlap? I mean, you go to Rapture, but maybe you see... In the DLC, I guess, yeah. In the DLC, right. but in the yeah. real game, so you're doing basically a sequel. In fact, you gave all the advantages to an, an unintentionally to another team that was able to use that entire foundation while you did the hard work of building from the top, the bottom up again. Which yeah, is yeah, that's a blessing and a curse, too, because then, you know, part of, I think, what people loved about Rapture is coming to a new place, right, that they'd never seen before. So right. I think it was both a blessing and a curse, um, I gave to those guys. We gave to those guys because they had to sort of rekindle that same kind of. Oh my God, where am I? What is this place? And that's hard. But coming up with that other place is also really, really, really hard. And that took us a while to figure out. And so, I think we were like spent a bunch of time just talking about like, well, what what is a Bioshock game? You know, mm-hmm. if it's not Rapture, what is it? And um, we thought American history was part of it. You know, because Rapture was set in American history. Um, we thought of, um, and so then we were talking, okay, well, if we're set in history, where, when, you know, and, you know, obviously like if you say, well, it could be 1780, but the problem is, you know, from a game system standpoint, it's just not a lot. It's not a lot of technology, right? And right. you had a lot of technology in, in Bioshock. That was a big part of it. And, and then, so really the first, you know, the technology really started taking off around, you know, 1890, 1900. And all of a sudden you had electricity and you had movies and cars and airplanes, like this insane amount of stuff in a very short period of time. And um, that was, you know, probably quite confusing and destabilizing. And, um, and I started reading a lot about the period. And then we said, oh, you know, okay. We didn't have anything as clear as Art Deco to drive with. Um, we played around with Art Nouveau for a while, but um, eventually we sort of set upon this sort of, um, you know, the, you know, sort of neo-colonial style that was, you know, very American, right? The American, you know, colonial architecture style. Um, and then, yeah, neoclassicism and all this stuff that, you know, was of the era. And we started drawing from that and to some degree, having a little fun with it, you know, with the over the top nature of it. Um, and, um, and then sort of, you know, we ended up with, with, with Columbia. Yeah. Columbia is amazing. I mean, Columbia is amazing. Um, and I love the combination. I guess this kind of goes back to an interesting, or a, a, I'm sorry, a similar question I was asking you earlier, which is interesting to me, which is again, the, 
the subject matter? Was this, were you able to kind of just do this stuff without much problem? Because now you're invoking the United States and some of the history and some, some unsavory things. Certainly some of the people, I'm sure the publisher wasn't thrilled about some of the things people were writing about it specifically after the fact, but I don't was know. that okay for them? I never talked to them about it. I don't think, I don't remember a conflict on that game. I think maybe after Bioshock, they figured, because we actually had on Bioshock 1, I had a lot, I had a number of times where people were coming after me about the, you know, about the little sisters. I had a couple of press ambushes. Like, not, I'm not even, this was back for the game. The games press was generally more, was pretty supportive of, of you know, innovation and developers. Oh, sorry. There wasn't much of a pushback from the games press on people trying new things. But back then, like I remember a TV crew from a local news station wanted to come to do an interview at my house. And they came over to the house and I get a call from a PR person at 2K. And they were like, don't do the interview. This is an ambush interview. And I had to get them out of my house without sort of letting on that, that I became aware that it was an ambush interview. So I just said, look, I was like, sorry, something else came up. And they were really pissed off. But And I, I've had that a few times. I've had a few things that I realized people were trying to ambush me. But um, I just I think that it it's hard to um, I think once people played the game they understood that our goal was not to make like a child killing simulator. <laughs> but at the time, yeah, there was a bunch of people. I was confronted by some people at events who were like, "I think you should not publish this game. I think you know I find it offensive." And um, and I always said the same thing. It's like I, I appreciate that and I, I get it and I I'm sorry you find it offensive, but it's not you know that's that's not how we. You know, I believe it's it's telling an an interesting story, and I believe we're doing it with taste. And you know, I we probably shouldn't buy it. Yeah, has has that, especially kind of the ambushes you're talking about, and some of the more the hit PC kind of things that had come out. Does that make you more wary, or has that made you more wary of talking to people or being more open? Because you talk about how you're. We were talking earlier before we began about how you're a recluse in a lot of ways, and I am too. Um, but does. But I, I admit that I'm, I'm much of my reclusiveness comes from maybe not being treated very fairly by a lot of people. So I don't really want to interact with too many people. Do, do you, are you gun shy because of that? Or is that just, are you just kind of naturally? Like I think that? it's, I think it's two things. I think one is that, um, um, yeah, you, 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 once you have a few interviews where you realize that it's a very strange feeling to be in an interview and you realize the person is actually out to hurt you. Um, and that's their, you know, to some degree, that's their job. You know, I don't really begrudge it. It's just, but it's a very weird situation where this person's being very friendly with you and you realize that the goal of the interview is to make you say some stupid shit, right? right. Um, and, the, but the other more important thing was that I think when you become somewhat marginally famous, I think there, it's very easy to fall in love with that. And, and eventually that will fade, you know? And so like you go to a patch and people are coming up to you and wanting your autograph and all this stuff. And I think that's a real, it's very easy. And then, you know, when you're, when you're somewhat famous, you know, you go, sometimes you go to a hotel and somebody's like, Oh, Mr. Levine, and they upgrade your room. Right. And then wow. at some point, like a voice in my head said is like, you need to stopping, try to stop being a public figure. Because if you start needing this and wanting this, it's not going to be good for you emotionally. I have my own, you know, I'm, I'm my own, there's mental health issues and all that other stuff. And I don't think I was, I don't think I was cut out for like a public life. And so, you know, after Infinite, I basically just stopped, you know, I do very few 
things now. I do. I talk to a lot of students now. I do like interviews for people's classes and stuff. But I sort of stopped seeking out any press opportunities, and I'm going to do it for Judas. Um, but it's not something that I was. I'm really like super um, excited about it the way I used to be. Partly because I, I think that my only goal in life is to be successful enough now where I can keep making cool stuff, you know, and people will trust me to make cool stuff and give me money and trust me to make cool stuff. Everything else, you know, meeting famous people and, you know, you know, hobnobbing and all that other stuff. It's, I just don't think um, I'm good at it. And I don't think that, um, I think it's, I've seen people, I've had friends who really fall down that rabbit hole. It's understandable, right? It's, it's nice to have people adore you and have people recognize you. But eventually you start like going, oh, I hope somebody recognizes me here. Hmm. And that's really bad. That's a really that's interesting. So you feel like you caught yourself kind of like yeah. mid-fall there in a way. Yeah. So I just took myself out of the running for that. And um, it probably, you know, eventually time, you know, it's been 10 years since I shipped a game. So like, I, you know, that would have faded naturally over that time. But I really just said, okay, my focus just needs to be I'm working. And so I've just been working for the past, you know, nine years or whatever on this thing. And, um, you know, then spending, you know, getting my life together and, you know, spending more time with my wife and we got a dog and, um, you know, different things became more important to me. But making games has always been, making games is really important to me now. The rest of it is far less important to me. Interesting. Yeah, that's so, that's, uh, does, does that line up at all with kind of the, you have, you had a reputation for being exacting to work with in some ways does that line up with kind of the like you're feeling yourself a little bit or is that just kind of is that separate that you are you're exacting to work with you're still maybe exacting to work with today i think and that's separate from the, i think it's a little so yeah. let me tell you that when you got a you know a tens of you know many 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 millions of dollars project that is dependent upon you it is, and you have like anxiety issues. That's not a good combination to be because it's scary as fuck, right? Like I, at one point I tried to like get off of it and, you know, in the middle of it. And somebody I trust told me, it's like, if you do that, your career is done. You can't just walk away in the middle of a, you know, this massive project. They're right. never going to trust you again. And so I made that decision to stay on it. And I was not in a good emotional position to be running that project at the time, but I did it. Um, but the cost was, is I was anxious all the time. And that led me to, um, that, that led me to like, I was constantly terrified, you know, that's not a good place to lead from and getting sort of control of your emotions and control of your fear is a really critical part. So on this project, you know, I went to take two and I said that, um, look, this is going to be a long one. And I'm, but I'm going to have a small team and it's just going to take longer. And I can't tell you how long it's going to take exactly, but I think it's going to be really cool. We have something really special here, but I, I, I need you to give me the time so I can, and well, and I, I knew it couldn't be massively expensive. So, you know, I started thinking about this whole narrative Lego concept and how we can make mm -hmm. games modularly and more cheaply, but still deliver, you know, the same level of quality. And that's allowed me to sort of recover and, and take a step back and, um, you know, meditation and all these other things and medication. There's all the, you know, there's a whole battery of things, but most of it was understanding that 
I shouldn't put myself in a position where I am going to be under mass amounts of stress. When you're running, a, you know, and from the day I started, you know, from doing System Shock, where we had 14 months to make that game, to, you know, all the other games and Bioshock and Bioshock Infinite, it was just nonstop. I barely took a day off that entire time. It was nonstop pressure. And uh, I was cracking under it. And I tried to get out of it. And I was told that if I did, you know, quite reasonably, that that would really be the last game I ever worked on. And um, so I had to finish it. Um, also, so that you know, the team would fall apart and everybody would get fired, and you know, like it would not be That's good. The product would just disappear. And yeah. so I, I stayed on. I mean, I was, you know, just to be clear, I was you know compensated, you know, very well, and all that other stuff. It was just my own desire to like keep myself from um, you know cracking. Um, but I decided I had to really rethink my life after that because I did. I recognized how how you know how much stress I was under, and I wasn't. You know, you're not. A leader has to be able to manage their stress, so they're not going to be a good leader. Yeah, I want to. I mean, I don't know if you're willing to talk a little bit more about this, but I always talk. I mean, I'm I'm medicated for anxiety. I am mega anxious. Um, just running my company where, where the stakes are much lower is is all consuming for me, and so I can totally relate to that. How have you? You talked a little bit about finding yourself and kind of centering yourself. How have specifically have you done that over the years? Is and also have I feel like I've I've found just a little bit balance as I've gotten older, and I wonder if that has just naturally. Like, I feel like I have more wisdom and I feel like I understand wisdom for the first time in my life as I get older in my, in my you know, my upper 30s here where it really is a time thing. And I just look back sometimes and I'm like, why did I feel that way? Why did I care about that? Why was I like that? I wonder if that is also a little bit of it, too. I'd like to know a little bit more about your process and kind of unwinding yourself. Um, well, so when I decided to become, you know, to re-pursue a creative career when I was about 27, I was like, I re-engineered myself. Like I lost all this weight and I started changing how I dress and how I cut my hair. And I just sort of became a different person. And I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to become a creative, successful person. I'm going to figure it out. I joined the games industry and I, and I, you know, I changed physically and mentally, but I sort of built this, you know, I, I built this um, production machine out of myself. Right. And all, the only thing that mattered to me, cause like I didn't have any money, you know, my parents, I wasn't, um, you know, my parents paid for my college, which was very generous of them. That was the last time I ever got for them. So I knew I was on my own and I was like, I need to, I'm, you know, I was 28 or whatever. And I'm like, I have to, I have to make enough money, you know, for the future. And, and so I was like, this is my, you know, if I'm going to go for this, I have to go for it. And I, everything else has to fall aside. And uh, so I built myself into something that could, you know, really work incredibly hard and be incredibly focused. Um, but you know, there was a pretty shaky foundation under all that stuff, you know, and sure, I have a similar experience you've had, you know, uh, you know, depression, anxiety, all that, all that kind of stuff that, that comes along with it. And then on infinite, I got, um, obsessive compulsive disorder came in, like at one point in the project came in and slammed me. Um, for, I don't know if people know, but it's obsessive, intrusive, unwanted thoughts about things that are really unpleasant. I don't know if you've ever experienced it, but I haven't, no. No. And, um, and so I'd be in meetings and all I could think about was the thing I was obsessing over. And like, I couldn't walk down the street without, um, like I remember I was in New York once for an, an event and I was walking down the street trying to get back to my hotel. And I kept seeing, I was obsessing over this, you know, like, um, let's say there were ears, people's ears. I was obsessing. I had this thing called body dysmorphia by proxy. And I would see people's ears and they'd be, outsized large and they would freak me out and they were of course they weren't actually outsized large i was just that's what the disease says to you and so like 
all I can think about were people's ears, 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 all. And it's, it's really bad. I mean, a lot of people have this with, um, with, um, you know, like, um, contamination and they, they think they, people wash their hands a hundred times. Right, right. It's very similar to that. And so I'd go to work and I'd be in meetings and all I could think about were people's ears. And, um, and it wasn't really, as I said, it wasn't really ears, but you know, it's, it's, it's a personal thing. And it's just, you become insanely focused on something that just doesn't matter. And, and you, and so for the last two years of the project, I was like having this problem. And I, I and I saw somebody, um, I saw this um, person, it's something called, um, and for people who have obsessive compulsive disorder, they're not aware of it. There's something called um, cognitive behavioral therapy, which is essentially they get you comfortable with the therapist, gets you comfortable with the thing you're afraid of. And it's by slowly introducing to you, like if say you're afraid of spiders, mm-hmm. they would bring a spider into the room. But first they'd draw you a picture of a spider, right? And then they'd show, show you a video of a spider. And then eventually there'd be a spider to the other side of the room. And eventually you touch the spider. And it's really hard. But that's how you defeat the disease is by confronting it. You don't run away from it. You confront it. And that's how I got. And I got that got fixed right about the same the time the game shipped, which is probably not um, an accident. Um, but then after that, you know, a bunch of stuff happened. And I sort of I had a lot of putting myself back together to do. But fortunately, you know, Take Two was generous with the time. And I was able to spend like the next few years just like getting my head together. And I was, you know, like you, it was medication, meditation, therapy, all this other stuff. And I was able to then get back where I could work and still be productive, but I had to do it at a somewhat slower pace. And then as I got stronger, I was able to pick up the pace again, but I'm not, I don't want to return to the pace I used to be at. Yeah. I, I, I hear you, man. I mean, it's sad to hear that, but I, I understand, like I totally get it. And I learned through my own process of trying to heal or whatever that, you know, of just the very feeling of being depressed. Like I didn't really know that that's where my anxiety came from, you know, and how quickly a person who knows what they're talking about can diagnose you and figure you out. You know, if you're just open to it. I you really, so you found, you found good people to help you? Yeah. I found a guy when I lived in LA, I, um, I found a guy there who was great. And then, uh, I'm actually working now with a guy here in Virginia to kind of unwind myself from some of the medication if I can. Um, and also like just smoking way too much marijuana. So it's like, <laughs> stop, stop doing that too. But it's like, I, I need to come. I, I totally understand having this, uh, this active mind and I just need to, Calm down. I try to channel it into creative things, but it's not always easy to do. I wanted well, to ask you. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, I just want to say one thing before I move on. Please. The fact that you're figuring this stuff out when you're 38 versus I'm 56. So I it took me a lot longer to figure this out. And the fact that you're running a company and you're able to keep your sanity is, you know, you should give yourself a pat on the back for that because it's you're 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 ahead of schedule, which is good. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, I'm I'm blessed to have some good people in my life and. I think less is more in a lot of ways too, you know, like giving more to less or giving more to fewer people and trying to kind of limit the scope of where my mind even travels, I think has been helpful. But I wanted to ask you a little bit about, cause you had, you had mentioned take two's patients. And I wanted to ask you about that because to, from my perspective, from the outside perspective, it seems clear to me that take two understands that they have a very important creative and they need to take care of him. And I think there are a lot of publishers that wouldn't let someone take 10 years in between their releases or whatever. Um, and yet I feel like it's like the anti, and I don't want to throw Konami under the bus for no reason, but it's like the anti Konami, not knowing what they have with Kojima, right? It's like, you just do anything you need to do to make that man happy. Don't you understand? Like you, you have to keep that nucleus together. 
what what's what is that relationship like with your publisher and where does that patience come from because i think a lot of people from the outsider surprised by it though pleasantly surprised by it because you you would think it would be more cutthroat than that attention is a very unique company um i, I never worked for I was not good at working for other people. I was always sort of an entrepreneur. Um, and Take-Two, I've been working for since, I don't know, 17 years now or something, a very long time since they acquired us. Um, they acquired us shortly, you know, sometime before we did Bioshock. And um, I think, you know, and so I report directly to the president, Carl Sladoff, who reports to the chairman. So we're sort of our own little weird one game publishing, you know, unit called Ghost Story Games under them. And they have these sort of label structure that Rockstar and their 2K and Private Division and Zenga, you know, they, so there's all, so there's sort of a bunch of different sub companies running under this larger label. And I think the one thing Take-Two understands, and the reason I think a lot of their games are very high quality is they understand what the quality is a very hard thing to find and, it t- and it, you've got to find it and then rushing it out the door before you found it is not. Um, it's not a, it's not a solution. Now I'm sure it must be very frustrating for them because like, I don't think at the beginning it, anybody thought it would take this long, but the way you build trust is you just be very transparent and you show them progress and you, I never try to overpromise anything. Like I've, I've, till I'm absolutely sure of like, okay, this is the data shipping on, you know, I'm going to just continue to say, hey, let me just share with you the progress you've made so you can make your own judgments. Um, because games are very, very hard to predict. And really the game is going to be great. Not only when we're done with it, but we've had enough people play it where we feel it's ready for the gamer. So they are going to be, you know, we are reasonably confident they're going to have a good experience with it, but they're on board for that. Um, I think they know that because they work with, you know, like Rockstar, you know, only makes really high quality stuff and right. 2K has done a ton of high quality stuff. And, um, and, you know, you gotta if you if you've spent all this money and then you ship it before it's ready. I mean, you see what happens. It's not great. Yeah, indeed. And it's cool to know that a, a mega publisher, the guys that publish, like you said, Grand Theft Auto, are working on making get Grand Theft Auto six out there are also incubating. You know, it's funny to call it a smaller product, but based on your the st- yeah. size of your staff, you know, you'd be the smallest PlayStation studio, for instance, by far. I think. Um, which yeah, we're, be, we're very. I mean, we're very small. Um, yeah as a team and so you know that was our strategy too is we just would tell them we're, we're going to have a relatively low burn rate and i think that's what happens one of, one of the biggest problems with teams big teams is you you build up this huge team to ship a game and then the game's done and the creative the creative leads have no idea what's next and so you have this if you're not a multi-product studio right you end up with people sitting around not knowing what to do next and so by keeping the team really small not only do we have a very low burn rate and and doing over more time like that's the one. That's the one sort of um, modifier that I hadn't really seen a lot of people think about. Is like, what if you just had a lot fewer people and you took more time? It's not really in line with like sort of you know publicly facing companies quite often. But, but I think they viewed us as an ex, you know sort of an experimental unit of seeing if, how this works um, because the cost is is going to be relatively you know <laughs> relatively low for a, you know a triple A AAA title because of the way we structured it. And the modularity and all the things, you know, all these sort of innovations we're trying to come up with how we work. But um, it allows us breathing room in a way that when I was, you know, had 200 people, you know, waiting for every decision or 300 people or 400 people, you, the pressure that puts on you makes you, you know, it doesn't make, always push you to make the best decisions. Yeah, I, I couldn't, I, 
that seems like a lot. I wouldn't be built for that personally. I don't. I think I'd have to know my own weakness to know I couldn't lead a team like I think, that. I think there are certain people who are, but like I'm not built for that either. Um, yeah. I'm. I really like knowing everybody. Um, and um, but back then, certainly, and maybe even so now, I don't know because I don't really talk to a ton of people outside of Take Two. You know, that's one question. It's like, well, how many people do you have? Well, how are you going to make a game if you don't have fewer than 400 people or something? And it's just like right. bigger. I mean, I can't imagine how many people worked on, you know, God of War or whatever or or, or the new Jedi game because they're so big. And, yeah, and those are $200 million dollar games, yeah. you know, yeah. at least. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's crazy, man. I'm 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 very interested to see once once Judas comes out and how people respond to it and like maybe people can glean some interesting lessons from the way you guys do things, too. Um keeping churn rate rate low. How do you choose your collaborators? I wonder, I wonder if you've ever talked about that. Like when you were moving over, kind of dissolving irrational, moving over into, into ghost story and kind of getting a smaller thing going, how do you know who you want to bring with you? Did you have like a core team that you wanted well, to take or were there, what did you kind of go and get your all-star team? Well, I, what happened is I resigned my position at the end. Cause I was like, I can't, I can't run the studio where I'm not your guy. Cause I, because of the sort of mental condition I was in. And um, Take-Two said, well, you know, what if you were to start a smaller thing under Take-Two? Like you said, because I said, I'm going to go start something much smaller. I really appreciate all the opportunities you've given me, but I can't. I'm not the guy who can, you know, I'm not going to be effective managing those p- people anymore because, I'm, you know, I, I barely got through Infinite. Um, and, um, and so then that studio became, you know, basically 2K Studio and um, mm-hmm. at that point and, you know, you could, um, and so I went off with a small group of people from the studio and we, you know, started a ghost story and, you know, we, you know, it was very small. We were only like 12 people at that point. Um, and, um, I chose people from the product that I felt comfortable working with. And some of them were quite junior, you know, some of them were people, you know, that was like their first game. Um, some people are more experienced. Some people I'd worked with for a very long time, like Sean Robertson. Some people like just came out of QA, like Drew Mitchell. Um, and then, you know, our our head of technology, you know, um, Eric Erland, you know, I had known on Infinite, but the team was so big, I had barely interacted with him. So I actually was talking to somebody else originally, and he wanted to go somewhere else. So he's like, well, you should really talk to Eric. And I talked to Eric, and I'm like, well, this guy's really smart. And... Um, and so, you know, we started and, you know, frankly, we really had no idea. I had done that talk on Narrative Lego. I knew the sort of structure I wanted to build something under, but we had, there was no game, there was no characters, there was no world, there was nothing, no look. And, um, and even the, you know, the whole system, the Narrative Lego comes, was a PowerPoint I made. It wasn't like, we had, it, it didn't exist as a game system. We had to sort of build all that from scratch. And I knew that was going to take a long time. I knew we were going to kiss a ton of frogs along the way. So, um, you know, and then along the way, we've, you know, I've, I've hired people I've known for, I've had a lot of people come in and out of the project. I've, you know, I brought like guys like, you know, um, Raph from Arcane, you know, like who left for Arcane, he came to work on the game for a while, then he went off to do his own thing. And um, people, I, and then the ton of people I worked with before, like tons, I don't know how many people for Infinite and Bioshock would have come back, but like probably 30, 40 people who've worked before, you know, have come back sometimes individually. And sometimes like, you know, there's companies like, um, um, like disbelief, which are you know a bunch of coders who were like the core technology team on Infinite, and they have their own company now. And we sort of you know we contract them out, and so we, we you know we work with them. We work with people all around the globe, and then like I built a new writer team out of um, 
I, I want to, for some reason, I got this impulse to find a lot of people who didn't work in the games industry before. And I was wondering, could I train up some writers to write, you know, our kind of games specifically? So Drew Mitchell and I, as I said, who's sort of my, my narrative partner in crime, we built a team of very young writers, most of whom come from, um, not even from film, because none of them are like Hollywood people. They're all people like film students and stuff. And they've done an amazing job at um, learning the ropes because writing for games is very difficult. You're you're not just writing f a story, you're writing for a game design, right? And the closer you understand that game design, the better you're going to be. And a lot of writers don't play the game a lot. Um, a lot do, but a lot don't. And and so as a writer, I've always been a writer game designer and I've always really loved game design. And so I've always made a real effort to, you know, like Audiologues are a great idea of, of a designer who understands game of you know, Austin really understanding game design. Indeed, yeah. Um, where, you know, so like the big daddies for me were like a narrative component, but also I, a game system. So I designed it both as a game system. Well, I designed as a game system first. Most things I usually design as game systems first. Like Elizabeth was a companion character, but I had no idea what her character was. I mean, we knew we wanted to build on the character work we had done in, in Bioshock 1, but really make it central. And then, you know, in this game, I had a system. I had this narrative Lego system, right? Um... And if you could put a link to the talk I did on it, if people are curious. Sure. Yeah, I'm, I'll write a timestamp. Yeah. Um, but it was like, you know, that was like nine or 10 years ago. And I had this whole idea of how to do games with this sort of make narrative games that are much more reactive to the player, the player um, thing. And not everything from Narrative Lego got in, but enough did that we, I think we're, I think we're achieving, you know, a sense we're going to deliver on a bunch of that stuff. And that's going to be pretty interesting. Um, we haven't talked about exactly how we're doing that yet. That'll be for, you know, down the road, but it's still our guiding star. Um, it's just some ideas we had, you know, like a long time ago, but you eventually figure out like, oh, what is the actual application of that? And that takes a long time. But um, I've had really good collaborators on this game and they've been mostly very lovely to work with. And uh, I've got a great partner in, um, um, you know, I, I hired a producer who did Shadows of Mortar and that's been a huge fan of that game. So Zeb Waddell came over and I just kept building up a great team of collaborators over time. Yeah. And it seems like you're able to take two kind of gives you that flexibility with contractors and keeping yeah. the nucleus small. It's that's cool. And it seems like that's the way a lot of games are being built more collaboratively than ever in that way. Yep. Um, so I'm wondering, <laughs> was it fresh? I was, I was doing, I didn't want to read too much um, and get to prepare for this. I don't like, cause I don't like, I don't like predetermining the direction an interview like this will go, but I came across the article from Bloomberg that they wrote in early 2022 about kind of the troubles of your game, which was unnamed at that time and um, was re remained unnamed in that, in that article. Like we said, it was, it didn't leak at all, but that no hearing what you're saying now about kind of the slow and deliberative way you're making games, kind of the patience of take two, the leadership there to give you time and energy and able to find yourself and then, iterate on these small on the smaller project that will turn into something bigger that article kind of in reading it now seems to have missed the point and i wonder if things like that are frustrating to read especially because i know i've had hit pieces and other pieces written about me you know they're going to come out because they ask you for comment ultimately yeah so i wonder how if that was frustrating spe specifically because you were less than a year away from actually showing the game although maybe you didn't know that at the time it, it was what is that like uh to the to your process of making games and kind of having this story written about you that that requires a lot of people to be talking about you basically so it's very strange thing and you probably have this experience once you become sort of better known than say the average person mm. that 
you're usually used to being able to like track all the people in your life and making sure you have good relationships with all the people in your life. But, you know, once you start getting better known and, you know, and you start reading like, oh, somebody person you never met saying X about you on the internet or Y about you on the internet, it can get upsetting. I think that um, part of, I think social media can create a lot of emotional problems for people. But once you sort of realize that, I very, you know, you don't have a ton of control over that stuff. You really have to um, say, look at anything and say, is there something valuable here, even if it hurts to read? Can I take something away value from this? And what's valuable here and what's not? I think it's reasonable that people who worked on the game, so I think one of the biggest critiques of the process was that, you know, it taken a long time. Hmm. Um, and one of the reasons it took so long time is you want to avoid things like, you know, the kind of work style we had, you know, we did on previous games because we had so many people, the demand to get it done quickly, you know, quick, relatively quickly was very, very big because the money was just, you know, you just hear, you just hear the, the you know, the, 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 the money flying out the window. And so this is one of the key reasons we wanted to do it differently. However, given that the game was, because we we're trying to, we were trying to build sort of sort of blue sky concept, I think it took longer than we might have thought They didn't get, you know, not radically in terms of the expense, you know, but the time sort of was longer than we had originally thought. And I can understand some people, especially if they're young and they've only done a couple of projects, that might get a little frustrating, right? Because they're like, well, I didn't, I didn't know this game was going to take this long. And even though it wasn't like high pressure along the way, super high pressure along the way, because very different than the other titles, it's just a lot of time. So I read it as sort of like individual people that might not align with individual people view of their life and how many games they want to ship. Because when I was younger, I got to ship a whole bunch of games. Right? I never worked on a game for this long before. Right. The most I ever worked on something was probably Bioshock 1, you know, because that was, it took a long time to set up. And so it was, we were kicking around for a long time. It's probably seven years or like that for Bioshock 1. Um, basically, ever since System Shock 2, there was like an idea we would do something like that again. So that was a long time coming. And then Infinite was about five years, um, but System Shock 1 was 14 months. And so... Um, um, I think that there's, I understand why people, that wasn't for everybody. And that's like, I always say this to people, like I've had people who come to me and say, you know, I don't believe in this or I don't believe that in the game. And my general response is like, well, let me tell you my view on it. But if you still feel that way, this probably isn't the, you know, you shouldn't be somewhere where you feel that this is not good for your career. Cause one thing I'm proudest of is that people who leave after working on games with us, it's usually the first thing they put on their resume you know, Bioshock or Bioshock Infinite or System Shock. And I think that, uh, you know, your career is long. You know, you work on a product for a few years, but your career is long. And if you can benefit from, oh, you worked on that game, right? Because I always look at that when I see something, like when Zeb came in and I saw he had done Shadows of Mortar. I'm such a fan of that game. And we just started talking. We remember we had a talk like this on Zoom one night for like hours. And I wanted to... um you know, just understand that experience of well, what's it, what was it like to figure that out, you know, to figure out that the nemesis system that it worked, was that exciting, you know, all those nerdy questions I had, all those fanboy questions I had. Um, but, you know, um, I think that the game, the game's taken a long time and not everybody's got the same v view of it. So it's frustrating in the sense that I think we were trying to address a lot of concerns that, you know, people, journalists often write about in terms of, you know, the work culture environments. Right. But... Look, that's like a damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of thing, right? Because you're like responding to old things and yeah, new problems. At the end of the day, you know, it's the same what I said about being, you know, famous. You really just have to focus on the craft. 
And so that stuff used to bother me a little more. But a few years ago, I kind of had an evening where I like deliberately said something online that I thought was going to piss people off because I was like, I need to inoculate myself from this feeling of caring about this. Cause the worst thing that could happen to you as a writer is if you're afraid, Mm -hmm. a writer who's afraid can't tell the truth. And that's all you're trying to do when you write. Like that's what people respond to. They respond to the truth or at least people trying to tell the truth, revealing something true about the world. And you have to lose the illusion that you're some perfect entity. You know, you have to lose the illusion that everybody's saying about you. Everybody talks about you is wrong, you know, because look, everybody's got different perspectives. And the same way I think there are a bunch of people out there who I have, even people I love, there's lots of critiques I'd have of them. Um, vice versa too. doing that and taking all that heat on Twitter. That was like the last time I posted something that I deliberately tried to post something really controversial. And it was really freeing. Because it was like it was like an inoculation. It was cognitive behavioral therapy. It was the, it was the spider. And so yeah, I that's so interesting. Spider. And I tell you, <laughs> as soon as I did it, you know, I took a little Dutch courage and I did it. And it was the healthiest thing I've ever done in my life. And so now I just like I I just try to have honest conversations on the team of like, well, how do we feel about this? You know, how do you feel about that? And if somebody challenges me now, like I think before, I was much more insecure and when your insecurity is the root i think of most personality flaws almost all you probably say hitler was probably deeply insecure you know at his, at his our work you know yeah. if, he, if he was a successful painter you know would have been very different in, in, yeah that would have been that's you know, like Weimar a key butterfly effect yeah biggest um, butterfly effect of the 20th century perhaps yeah and um and so it was shocking that effect of you know i you know brought that cognitive behavioral with everything i touched a spider and then those articles just meant to say, I read them and I, I read, I read things about me because look, there's some interesting insight. It's interesting to see what people say about you and you have to be open to saying, Oh, that's, that's not a bad point. But, you know, I also understand it's people who maybe had different goals and different objectives in their life. Right. And maybe this pro and clearly this project, you know, wasn't right for them. I've said that to many people. I've said to people, like sometimes people in the service, look, maybe, you're not happy here. Maybe this isn't the right place for you. Have you thought about that? You know, we like you, but you don't seem happy. And, um, and we often, you know, part with people as friends and, and give them a nice, you know, if they want to leave, even people who quit, we've sometimes, you know, have given them a cushion because they had, you know, but they've been with us for a long time and they just eventually, you know, it wasn't for them anymore. And I appreciate that people spend, you know, people in this project, there's, there's a bunch of people who've been on this project for a very long time. And I really, it means a lot to me because I understand that. It's, it's a big chunk of your life to put f- your faith in somebody else. To put their faith in me for that long, I really, I've grown to appreciate that over time in a way that maybe I couldn't when I was younger. Yeah, it's a, there's a loyalty there and and certainly they share a vision. They want to see it through. It, it could be what you're saying. They understand what it means to have that on your resume to be part of something that might end up being meteoric in its own way. Um, you had brought up a little bit about you know, expressing yourself. And I know this is something you and I talk about privately, and I wanted to bring this up. Um, I, I think from a broad sense, I'm curious from like a 40,000 foot view, how do you feel about um, the full spectrum of, of expression in games right now? Do you feel like games are telling the full spectrum of stories? Do you feel like the media is allowing developers and publishers to explore different ideas? From my perspective, in, in some sense, it's, it's, it says a lot about a game like Bioshock or Bioshock Infinite that we still talk about it and love it today. And we say still like it's been that long. It's been 15 years and and nine years, respectively. 
but we play so many games and so many products come out that you would think it would be subsumed by something at some point. And we were talking about GTA five before. I mean, what does that say about that game? That's still relevant, you know, today it, it, it says a great deal. Um, but it, I also think it says a little bit about risk aversion, about sameness. When I think about games that say something political or social, it's usually really trite, very samey or very safe. Or you think about something like call of duty or Homefront or something that tries to tell like a story about conquering the United States. No one, no one's ever really trying to tell, or a few people are trying to tell stories that are too serious. I look, a, I look a lot of, a lot of AAA development, though I love a lot of these AAA games. We were talking about the mindlessness of some of them, that there is something missing. Um, and I feel like it comes, I, I personally feel like a lot of it is rooted in this old sense of media gatekeeping in some sense that certain things simply aren't allowed to be said. Certain things aren't allowed to be expressed. And I'm concerned about this, not only in games, but with the people that make games. What happened to John Gibson, for instance, at Tripwire? And I don't know if you're familiar with that story, but it's an awful and unfair and ridiculous situation. Same thing with the Scott Cawthorn guy that made Five Nights at Freddy's and others. So there seems to be a a monoculture in video games. And I wonder if you identify that, too, and what you might think about that. I think there's a bunch of factors at play. Um, No, I've always been in more than more is better. Like, I remember... Like when, say, Gone Home came out and people are like, oh, it's not really a game. And I've, I've always felt that the more games, the better. And, you know, and there's a lot of critique of people, of gamers being gatekeepers. And then that's sort of inverted where you then had other people becoming the gatekeepers and saying, well, we don't want these types of games. And right. I'm a pro. I'm an art. I'm an art person. Like I'm an art guy. I like art. I like challenging art. I I like going to see something and just feeling, oh, my God, I can't believe like that somebody had that idea, right? I can't believe, I never expected, you know, that to happen. I think that, but there's risk. Whenever you do something like that, you're taking a risk. You're taking two kinds of risk. One is, one is I think a very reasonable risk, which is, you know, if you're spending, you know, as you said, 200 million, 300 million, you know, if somebody's doing one of these huge games, a billion people on it, it needs to be, go down fairly smooth so you can have million, like how do you make something like, you can't understand. I I can't comprehend. Like say Bioshock, you know, Infinite sold what 10, 15 million copies, right? Fifteen million copies, and then how many people played their friend's copy or bought it used? You're probably talking approaching twenty million people or something who played it. You can't imagine what it's like to have twenty million people experience something, right? Um, and so. You can't try to make a game that appeals to that many people is pretty much impossible. You really just have to guess. There's nobody who really knows. Like, do I know that Judas is going to, you know, appeal to like 10 million people, you know, or whatever? I have no idea. You know, I just always take the approach with Bioshock and these games. I'm going to make something I think is really cool. And I think I'm enough of a gamer that I love things that a lot of other people love. And, but I can't, if you try to make something that, isn't what you think is cool. There's no, there's no prayer. I've done that. Like, you know, for instance, um, I think there are TV shows, you know, right now, probably if you're working in Hollywood, almost all the work is in genre, you know, like, like superhero stuff or, or mm-hmm. star Wars or whatever. And I love all that stuff. Right. So if somebody came to me and said, you want to write one of these? I'd say, sure. And I know the material and I'd be super, you know, I, I don't really want to do it now because I don't really like working on other people's IP, but those IPs I get that I could, you know, if, 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 asked, I could probably at least do a reasonably good job. Um, but I've worked on things once. I once worked on an IP that I didn't love and I needed the job. 
And if you're in Hollywood now and you and you have all the work is in these genre things, most of the people working on those things don't like the genre too, and they're kind of embarrassed by it because they're not nerds, right? They don't mm -hmm. they think, oh, this you know, fucking you know, Ewoks or whatever, it's a little nerdy. You know, you and I are like, oh, cool. But a right. lot of people, so you have sort of normal people who are now tapped in the same way. If I was tapped to write the Barbie movie, I probably would wouldn't know what to do. Actually, I know the guy who one of the writers. I know knew I went to college with Noah Baumbach, so maybe he could teach me how to write the. Um, <laughs> movie. But it's not something I would know how to do. Um, and so they're sort of stuck having to do something that they're not in love with. So I think that, so you have to, you know, you have to find people who you can trust to run these massive teams. And those people may be really good managers, but they're not always necessarily people who are in love with the thing they're making. And you have all this pressure from the publisher in many cases to be like, well, you this better work out, kid, because we're spending, you know, two, three hundred million on it. You better not blow it. And so don't take risks. The other thing is, I think, and so that's understandable. I, I think at the end of the day, you have to overcome it. If you want to be successful, you really have to try to get past that fear. And Take Two, I think, is very good. You know, I think because they were built, they were house built on GTA, which was incredibly risky, both from a design and an aesthetic standpoint. They're more risk tolerant than a lot that's of That's a great point. I never even thought of that. I never even thought about that. That's such a great point. Where, yeah. you know, EA is more built on John Madden football, right? So right. You, know, there, it, you have these very different sort of cultures that form out of that. Both are valuable and good. I don't know why I never thought of that. That's so interesting. Yeah. Um, and so, even games like Manhunt being a big deal and all the other things, they always took the heat. Yeah. 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 Because, you know, those guys wanted to sort of ring some bells and do some cool stuff. And they had, they knew, they understood that people would want to be, you know, a gangster running around this, you know, a giant city and, you know, committing crimes and, and you know, all the satirical humor that, in those games. But I think what, I think the big mistake that people have done in the past 10 years is, so when you do any kind of market testing, there's things about statistics that are really important. Like you have to, there's things like, uh, I don't know if you know the terms like self-selection. If you, um, you, so like, so you have to, there are things that make data worse and better. The thing, the thing that makes the data really bad is like, if you have people choosing, instead of randomly selected people, there are people who choose to take a survey, for instance, right? And they're, they're from a narrow demographic. Right. Or if they're, they're, self-reporting on their feelings about things rather than a neutral observer reporting their feelings on it, like watch them play because self-reporting is notoriously unreliable. Um, small data sets, you know, okay. I, I, I asked three people about this game feature and they all hated it. Well, maybe if you asked a thousand people, these three would be the outlier and everybody or vice versa. Maybe they'd all, you know, these people loved it. If you asked a thousand people that you may get a very different piece of data. So there are all these ways to do bad data and right. we talk about this and because we do like, you know, like, you know, if you do a focus test and you have people play the game, you want to get, you want to make sure your data is pretty clean. And, you know, I, I was, I was a drama major, so I don't know that much about this stuff. You know, I make, I make a study of things I need to make a study of. Twitter is the worst possible focus test for a million reasons. One is about, so Twitter is a relatively small part of the population who are tweeting, right? They're generally very well educated and generally essentially 1% of the Twitter audience is producing almost all the tweets. And so the amount of people who are expressing feelings on Twitter are very self-selected and very frag, very small. And they tend to have extreme beliefs. So you tend to have people extreme on one political spectrum and extreme on the other being the most vocal. So if you think Twitter is a good focus test, you're really getting very bad data. So a lot of people, they're, and this is what I was talking about the spider, you know, with, with my own tweet, you know, getting over my fear that is 
you need to discount really Twitter as a as a data point. It's not because there aren't great ideas or great people on Twitter. It's just because from a statistical standpoint, it doesn't hold up. And I think for the past you know ten years, people have been using Twitter as a legitimate data point on on now. If you want to know what sort of game journalists think or journalists think, it's a great data point, right? Right. Because they're all on it. You right. tend to have almost you know, a huge amount of the journalist community is on Twitter. Reinforcing themselves, you know, in, the, in that bubble. Yeah, well. yeah. You, you know, they're – and, yeah, there's all things about group behaviors and stuff you could look at. But even, you know, assuming it's all, you know, it's all good faith stuff, it's still very small and narrow group. So it's a really good thing if you want to know, like, how it might review or something might get covered in the press. That's really good. But for the – 15 million people or whatever you hope play your game. That's not, that's not, that's not meaningful data because most people play the game. You know, do you think most people play video games really even know who I have any idea who I am? You know, people play Bioshock. They have no idea who I am. Probably maybe a million of those people might know who I am. Most people know, they barely know that, you know, they don't know ghost story is, they don't know. They just see a game box and their friend tells them it's cool and they buy the game in the same way that, I think about like a movie, you know, or something like that, or, or like a, a book or, you know, a YouTube video. Like, I don't, I trust what my, you know, my friends turn me on to things, you know? Um, and I think we tend to think that there's this intensely focused intelligentsia who are the gaming buying public. And really it's most people just going about their daily jobs and they want to have some fun and they want a cool experience and they're not paying attention to all the debates going on in the games industry. And I think it's it's good to like I read Twitter every day. Like I'm, I, I like I enjoy it. I don't really post on it because I think yeah. that's I, I read it too. I don't post it. I only post promotionally now. But um, mostly the pedantic shit is what really drove me away. Because you know it's like the old joke. You can say anything, and then someone will say like, "But what about this? You forgot about this." And I'm like, I can't take it. So I just remove myself from that situation entirely. Yeah, it, it's it, fun to read. It's <laughs> it's not it's not. I don't think. Look, I appreciate all the people I know who are on it who are providing me all the entertainment. I found for myself, if I tweet and then you're looking to see how many likes it got, that's not a healthy way. Definitely. It's not a healthy, it's, a, it's a, especially for younger people. I don't necessarily for younger people. For me, it was super unhealthy. So I basically stopped posting mostly because I don't like what it does to me. Um, and I think it, um, man, I, but I would never, I've never really been a person who gets on and shit fights ever, gets shit fights with people. Um, I just don't, I never really understood that. And, but I did, but I did have the thing where I post something, a funny joke, and I'm like, oh, how many people like my funny joke? And that's not, it's not, especially for younger people, um, but especially, but even for older people like me, it's not good. I mean, I'm, I'm really lucky that I, I really feel like I'm, I was at the cusp of being affected by that. I always talk about on our shows how, you know, Facebook was founded when I was in college and I went to Northeastern right in your neck of the woods and we were one of the first schools on it, but that was when I was a sophomore in college, you know, so by that time, and it was nothing compared to what it is now. So like, I almost kind of that formative time, I almost, I escaped just, just by the skin of my teeth without being affected by social media in my most formative teen years. I'm, I feel blessed about that. What you were saying about, about selectiveness is too, is funny too, because, you know, can I always think about, and people joke about this. It's like, when you go to Amazon, the more you would rather see a product with four stars that has 5,000 ratings than a product with five stars that has three ratings. Yes. Because you're like, I don't trust that. It, that it's, doesn't it's, seem it's right. Meaning. It's, mean, it's yeah. absolutely meaningless. Right. Um, so, you know, that's, but I think that's why things like Steam reviews and Amazon reviews have become so popular is yes. because the data set is large enough where the rounding errors will get, you know, you'll, you'll get some reasonable data, assuming people aren't review bombing or people aren't cheating up the score and they have some measures against that. That's, you know, seeing 25,000 Steam reviews and it's overwhelmingly positive 
is generally going to mean something that it's just, and this is not the fault of game reviewers, it's just that sort of, ag, you know, that, 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 that many opinions has a sort of utility that you can rarely get out of one opinion. Now it's also real. I also still, there's plenty of, you know, reviewers that I will read, um, you know, cause I trust, you know, I, I don't that I trust your opinion cause I'm, I'm always going to have deviation. Like it's not going to mean I'm actually going to like it, but I'm curious to see what they have to say about it. And they have something interesting to say about it. You talked a little bit, of, I mean, going back to the, the, the subject we just mentioned about kind of self-sorting and the limited nature of people's feedback. And I love that you brought up steam because steam is so impressive to me. I mean, I'm a PlayStation guy. That's where we really dwell. And I've always thought it's like, why doesn't Sony just tell some, you know, their engineers like, just go copy what these guys are doing. This is incredible. It tells you how many hours you played. It gives you very granular ways to score things and everyone kind of trusts each other. It's this very small L libertarian kind of situation. And I, I dig that. And then I think of places like Reddit where like our subreddit is, I go there once a week to check in what people are saying. Like it's mostly people that hate us. But then you go and look and it's like 15 people, you yeah. know, they're saying everything. And you're like, we can't really take that very seriously either. So I totally understand what you're saying about that. And it's interesting to hear you deal with it on a much grander scale. I think thinking you're done and thinking you've achieved something is always dangerous because you things are really shaky and you have to honor those very complicated principles like free expression. Because look, freedom, free expression means people are going to say horrible shit. That's the problem with free expression doesn't mean anything unless people are saying horrible, horrible shit you don't like. Yeah, what's the point otherwise? I, that's That was always my confusion as well. What do people think it's for? You know? And listen, and I, I remember my mom told me when I was a kid, um, I don't know if you were, you were the Skokie March in, in, um, in, in, the, in the 70s. No, I don't. I don't know. So, you know, I was grew up, I was a Jewish kid. And you grew uh, up in Queens, right? I was born in Queens and I grew up right. in New Jersey. Yeah, I was New Jersey, my first okay. year in, a, in a, like a, an apartment in Queens. But I don't remember I was a kid. Um, but then I grew up in New Jersey. And this is about, I think, 1977 or so. So I was about 10 or 11 years old. And I read this thing in the newspaper that in Skokie, Illinois, there was a march, the Na American Nazi Party. You know, these guys, you know, they still back then wear like, you know, they swastikas and all that other stuff. They were going to march in this town called Skokie, Illinois, which was where a lot of Holocaust survivors lived. And I remember seeing this story on the news and being like, oh, my God, how could they let them do that? That's the worst thing I've ever heard. Because I, I was old enough where I sort of started starting to understand what the Holocaust was and all that other stuff. And I went to my mom and my mom was a very interesting woman. She was born you know, in 1938, I think. And so she kind of missed the woman's, you know, you know, feminism and, you know, the early stages of feminism. And she didn't get, she was a really smart woman. She didn't, she, you know, she didn't get to pursue a career. And I think she, but she had a really keen intellect. And I went to her and I said, mom, this is like the most terrible thing. And she said, well, Ken, there's this principle called, you know, freedom of speech. And what it means is that you have to defend the speech of your enemies because otherwise, um, if somebody starts to make decisions about speech, who, who do you trust to do that? Who do you trust to have to say what you can say? Because you have to assume that they're going to come for you. And I was like, oh, man, I don't, I don't know. And then I went off and I thought about it. My mom was really patient with me because I was young. And eventually I was like, okay, I think I understand. And the ACLU was actually at that time defending the Nazis. Yeah, which, yeah. Um, and that's what really shocked me. And then, but I was like, okay. And then I, that's when I first... It's like, okay, I think what politics is about, it's about sometimes accepting things you really don't like in protection of something really awful, right? Something really, 
I can't imagine. And look, and I think somebody could fairly critique me and say, well, you weren't in, you know, Bergen-Belsen or you weren't in Auschwitz. And so you, you, who are you to say how those people should feel? And I think that's a valid critique. Um, I will say that most of the people who were defending the Nazis in the ACU were Jewish. And I think because they believed in a principle that in the end of the day would keep things like the Holocaust from happening again. Because what's the first thing that, do that, that authoritarian governments do is they shut down speech. Mm-hmm. It's like the first thing they do every time. And, the, and the, the universal principle combining all sort of more liberal governments, de- democracies is f- more generous versions of speech protections. And you see in, you know, say North Korea or, 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 um, you know, or Russia or, you know, or, you know, Saudi Arabia. Um, and it's complicated. And I understand why people struggle with it. Not everybody had my mom, you know, to sort of give them a bit of wisdom when they were a kid. And I've sort of pursued that, you know, that discomfort and live with that discomfort my whole life. But I've yet to be convinced that there's, you know, maybe one day somebody will convince me, but they've yet to convince me that 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 this very bad compromise isn't unfortunately is not the best compromise that the only compromise we have. It's uncomfortable and it's bad. is dying and my only way out of here is with one of them say I have this coming. And you know what? They're right. 